G'day guys, welcome to the Origin Canine Podcast, where our mission is to enhance the full life cycle of working canines and handlers. The podcast is now available on YouTube and all major podcast platforms. If you're looking for our Australian-made tactical canine equipment, go to origincanine.com. Enjoy the show. Okay, g'day guys. Welcome to another episode of the Origin Canine Podcast. Um, today I've got another Aussie on um, and I'm proud to call Brad a friend of mine and a, he's a colleague in the industry, someone that I go to for advice um, and someone that, that I accept criticism from. Um, I've appeared on his podcast. Uh, he's a veteran of the industry, Brad Griggs. How you going, mate? Fuck, that's a nice wrap-up, Tom. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty good. things there and then just talk shit. <laughs> I'm happy to let it devolve into, into whatever debaucherous uh, OnlyFans content we sort of come up with in the next yeah. 15 minutes. I was legitimately torn with the idea of um, putting starting an Only Dams for Dammit. That's a nice little wordplay. I think it would probably go somewhere. I did the art. <laughs> I did oh, the shit, art really? Art. Yeah, yeah, only dams. But uh, anyway, what's oh? So I should probably fill people in. Um, I had a <laughs> I had a dog named Dammit. He's now serving with Western Australia Police. Sorry, he's not serving. He's owned by Western Australia Police, and uh, he is on track to qualify as a dual purpose police dog. So uh, that's Dammit, D A double M I T. And Tom, you met Dammit, didn't you, bro? I did. I met Dammit. And who's the other dog that I met over there? Boogs. Oh, Boogie. Boogie. Yeah, yeah. Damn it and Boogie. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, because I got back from the States and then I went over there and, and um, yeah, the, the girl that was over there was showing me around. So it was, yeah, it was good to see him, man. Because I sent some photos and stuff to you. I posed with him and whatnot. It's, um, yeah, you get around, don't you? I try to, bro. I try to. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> But, mate, this is not about me, Brad, today. <laughs> I reckon the more we can keep it that oriented that way, Tom, <laughs> the more popular this episode will be. Mate, I fucking – I knew from, like, as soon as I asked you to come on, you'd be, like, you'd try to deflect. I knew it. Yeah, you're like – I'm like, what the fuck do you want to talk to me about, Tom? And you're like, oh, I just want to go everything, like your childhood – you know, the time you got molested by that priest. Like, I just want to go into all of it, you know, wherever it goes. Father, I'm like, Father, Father O'Gorman, Bill. yep. <laughs> 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 oh, fuck me, Pink. This is going to be fantastic. No, nah, this, this will be on the cutting room floor, mate, this one. <laughs> oh, the whole thing from arsehole to breakfast. <laughs> well, mate, take us oh, back so- then. What's what's who's Brad Griggs as a kid? Where'd you grow up? What was it like? Um. All right. So we don't want to talk about what I do. I would think. Well, we'll we'll, we'll get to that. I, I think mean, a polished podcast host might start there, but no, no. Look, we'll we'll start we'll start wherever you want. Um, I was born at a very young age, Tom. Yep. Um. Not long after I was over-circumcised. <laughs> so, 
Yeah. Can't be right back to a lazy seven, but what are you going to do, you know? Just got to be grateful for what you have. That sounds like an old Arge Barker joke that I'm not going to tell because it'll ruin your story. But Now I, now I need to know the Arge Barker <laughs> joke. Uh, um, he, you want to hear it? Yeah. He, he goes, um, what do he say? He's like, oh, do you know the average porn star's penis is 12 inches? And he's like, 12 inches, that's unbelievable. He's like, I guess I'm the only guy here with an eight-inch cock then. <laughs> that's clever. See, that's good. how someone who's legitimately funny would put all that together. Yeah. I think I think you did fine, mate. Yeah, yeah it is what it is, Tom. But, yeah, I was, as I said, born at a young age. Two great parents. Loved me. Um, one little brother, Matt. Um yeah, he's he's over in WA now. Um, he was actually a British Royal Marine Commando. Uh, yep, no I'm pretty shit. sure I told you this, but you just looked nope. all surprised. Nah, right. didn't well, have, haven't heard that one. Yeah, so um, oh, Maddie's a pretty private fella, so I'm not going to go too far into everything. But yeah, yeah, um, I'll tell you more off camera, but. He joined the British Royal Marine Commandos. He won the, uh, he was awarded the King's Badge, which is the best overall soldier in that intake. They apparently don't give it out every intake. Okay. Um, yeah, got the Marksmanship Award. Basically, was just a fucking stud. And Sounds like it. Yeah, went on and served. I think he did. I want to say he did four years with them and then he went on and contracted a whole bunch um, and then used, I believe he used a program that they have um, for veterans to get a university education and now he works for a company in Western Australia. Hell of a guy. Awesome, man. Dude, you want to talk about studs? He, so you would understand because you guys are sort of, in a sense, brethren, I guess, being, both being commandos. Um, he's stuck with the extreme sports kind of thing. He's real into his mountain bikes and whatever. He actually yeah. did a ride from the Canadian border to the Mexican border, I believe. Okay. Just just and, to go for a ride or some sort no, of like yeah, charity shit, event shit, or it's a... Shits and gigs. Like, it, yeah. it's, it's, got some, it's got some fancy name. I'll get this wrong, but it was some crazy distance, like 1,200 kilometres or miles or 1,000 miles, whatever it was, sleeping in fucking ditches with space blankets and worrying about mountain lions and bears and buckled a rim and then his crew in WA freighted him one over, got it to oh, him. Shit. It's, an unsupport, it's an unsupported ride. Fucking remarkable dude. Even if he wasn't my yeah, brother. Yeah. Remarkable dude. And funny shit. as fuck. And Older, younger. A and a specimen. Two years younger than me. Okay. Yeah. Specimen. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and he's got this absolutely awesome wife and a great son. It's my nephew. I love him to death. I flogged him on a recent Melbourne trip. I flogged him on Halo. Flogged him. <laughs> Took him to time zone. I dropped Which... 80 bucks. I yeah. dropped 80 bucks and just... Beat him like a rented mule on Halo. <laughs> Which Halo? <laughs> you know the one in the arcade where you sit there with a the little gun and rat-a-tat-tat 
and you just shoot all the shit. Have you seen this? Nah. You mean you it's mean like, Halo like that old Xbox game or like a different yeah. Halo? Yeah. I did I didn't know they had an arcade version. Yeah, you sit in some seats and whatever else. I was just like throwing elbows at him and putting oh, him off fuck. kilter. Nothing like standing over Man, a Man, I haven't been to a I haven't been to a time zone in fucking years. <laughs> I, I love this kid so much, man. Like, you can just see, for better or worse, you can see, like, the stubborn little Griggs streaking him. And uh, so I'm beating him, and then I'm, like, chanting songs. I'm just going, what's it like, Charlie? What's it like? You know, you were raised on these machines. I haven't been on one of these in a decade. <laughs> look, at, look, look at me go, mate. Look at me go. I'm 45, Charlie. I called some lady over, I go, like I'm playing the game and I'm shooting and I sort of lean over, like the level ends, and I lean over, I go, excuse me, excuse me, and there's this lady there with her daughter and she goes, oh, what is it? And I go, I just need you to witness, right, this kid's name's Charlie Griggs, right? I go, I just flogged him on Halo, have a look at that score, and she's like, and she bought into it, she was great. (laughs) I thought she's just going to... Be like, uh, get away from that man. Like, no, she. Oh well, no, she was really cool. I go, I just need you to witness that I just flogged my nephew. Like, I was hoping, Cha- I was hoping Charlie would have the sense of mind to be like, oh, I don't know who this guy is. Uh, he just came and sat down next to me, <laughs> <laughs> started playing Halo. Took him. I, I love my time with him, man. I took him shopping in Target um, to get him some gear because I, I put some logos on some gear for him. And um, we're walking past the bras, and he's not looking. I pick one up. I go, and then nice and loud, I go, Charlie, let's get you fitted for this, mate. I go, you're 12 now. It's about time. And he's like, oh, no, Jesus Christ. You and Dad are just the same. <laughs> Uncle Brad. <laughs> he does this shit to me all the time. <laughs> I'm like. Hey, mate, birds of a feather. That's what they reckon. But, yeah, so, he... so that's. Sorry, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. All right, no, no, so that's um, that's uh, my little brother and then my mum and my dad, still together to this day. Um, they live probably 10 minutes away to so go and catch up with them sometimes and um, apart from that, dude, like, yeah, it was just a, I was lucky. I was lucky. I was born into a, I was born into a family with two parents that loved me. Yeah. And yep. obviously a Melbourne based, like you grew up in Melbourne, right? Yeah, correct. Yep. So you, you grew up. Like, I'm not. A, I'm not overly familiar with Melbourne. I've only been there a handful of times, and I've only been out in the suburbs once. Um, yep. What was it like growing up in Melbourne in the nineties? Oh, I'm, look, uh, don't ask a fish what it's like to live in water. Right, like, I, yeah. I can only just say, like, so I, I grew up in a suburban area. Um, I would say that, broadly speaking, it was, like, a standard middle-class-ish type area. Um, you know, it, it was – I went to a few high schools that, um, you know, there was – yeah, it was a proper, like, fucking 90s school, right? Like, and we had – all the cool stuff would happen at lunchtime. The police choppers had come over and the drug dealers had come down and stamp our kids on the tennis court. And, you know, it was pretty, pretty standard. Pretty standard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
quite a few of the kids I went to high school with are dead. Um, yeah, yep, yep. It, um, but like because of, of what, like obviously that's a natural attrition because of the the course of time. But in what sense do you mean that? No, 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 no. In what in what, in what context like do you bring that up? Youth. Reckless yeah. youth. Yeah. It wasn't a bad. I didn't grow up in some. Um, uh, I didn't grow up in inverted commas hard. You know, I, I certainly didn't. Um, but yeah, the the area I was in bordered onto some other areas that w- weren't as uh, I guess tranquil as my own. Yeah, right? and so I was around some of those kids, but I was never a tough kid. Um, yeah, that was it. Yeah, and that, that that's that was what I was sort of alluding to. I mean, it's I think people like me who grew up in the early two thousands had the assumption that that the nineties period for like someone in their early 20s was that old school rough and tumble sort of environment so i was just purely based on that assumption that that's why i was sort of probing a little bit yeah got you. but um can you hear that yeah. noise in the background oh vaguely vaguely not not enough okay. that it would interrupt my audio okay. or anything so i've got i've got some rain on the roof i called the fairy dog mother before and I said, "What what are we likely to get weather-wise?" She said, "Anything, any rain should be transient, so it should pass." I apologise to the listeners. Oh, bro, it's so actually, like I said, barely registered. Just for context, just for context, I run a full-time indoor dog training facility. It was the first in Melbourne. When I'm done with the Renos, it'll be the sharpest, um, and uh, so it's a double container height, probably 250 square meters in here. So that's echo from the rain it's a motherfucker yeah, yeah. but yeah it's, it was it was like you know kids got actually got punched in the face at school and we didn't have the internet and thank fuck because i don't know how kids these days are ever going to live down the areas of their youth because it's all on fucking tiktok you know? that's that's what i was so, after yeah yeah so oh that yeah. was i was more after like the contrast, like what's what was the nineties like versus, and like how did things change over your youth, early two thousands, two thousand tens to now, sort of thing. So that oh, that put just, a bit more context to my question. Yeah, you just you could get punched in the face on your way to school. Yeah, I got punched in the face a bunch of times, right? Like like, like I said, I wasn't a tough kid. Was it was it just um, like, was it just regular kid robbery, or was there boys. just gang stuff from those neighbouring suburbs? Boys. Yeah, boys yeah. being boys, there was like little graph crews and shit, you know, and there was always these fucking losers that would hang around that were like six years older than everybody else and they'd wanted to terrorise the young blokes <laughs> and just these yeah. fucking useless cunts. Oh, I dropped a C-bomb on a podcast. Oh, well. Oh, bro. <sighs> Floodgates have opened, oh, Tom. Mate, it's been dropped a few times before. I, I on the Mike Ritland one, I was explaining the use of the word "cunt" to the American audience because he asked about it. So don't worry, man. The sea bomb, sea banger is. Because I've uh, talked him through it. I know I've talked him through it previously. Oh, I don't, know, mate. Was it was it recorded? No. Well, there you go. Yeah, man, so, yeah, you could get, you could, you know, it was just, look, I, I think it was a much healthier time in so many ways. Um, 
you know, like mental health wasn't really a thing back then. Yep. You know, so, you know, you get punched in the face, you go to school again the next day, you get in a fight, you know, you fucking walk the, the other way home if the kid's too big, you know. Like I said, I wasn't tough. Um, but yeah, but it is, it is what it was. It is what it is and it was what it was, man. Like, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't feel that, I, don't, I definitely didn't go to a good school. Like, my school was, I, I would say, quite shit in terms of education and teachers. And I actually, yeah. um, I was done quite a disservice at that school um, in, in terms of, I actually wound up leaving. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was at a time where teachers were a lot less accountable for the bullshit that they pulled. Um, and... Yeah, so so I wound up going to a couple of different high schools, and then um, by that stage, pretty much I'd had the. By the time I was on my third high school, I'd pretty much had the hump. Like I wasn't going to go anywhere. I, I could I could pull A's in biology, and English, and science, anything in related related to that. Um, but then I'd I'd struggle with anything else. Struggled really hard with maths. Um, all of that kind of thing. And then it just got to the point where I left and got a job. Um, yeah, and that was and that. Was that. Um, it, was, it was funny. I actually had a, a phys ed teacher at the last school I was at who told me I should leave school, right? And it wasn't – he didn't do it nicely. He didn't offer me sage life advice. Oh, um, so he wasn't like – Oh, so he wasn't like, "Hey, hey, Brad, there's the, there's a big world out there, mate. Go and get your slice." He was just like, "Yeah, he probably." No, that was not the. Shouldn't be. That was not the spirit of the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, you like you were a pretty disruptive kid because you're you're like you're an intense guy, right? You've you've got a bit of the ADDs, like you're, you know, you. Yeah. Look at that. You got a high energy sort of uh, high energy to you. Looking back, so I got diagnosed with ADD probably three and a half years ago-ish, right? And I'm still not convinced I've got it. Like, I'm completely open to the fact that I don't have it. Like, I talk about okay. it with, you know, we always joke about it. I'm completely yeah. open to the fact that I don't have it, right? But when I went and got diagnosed, <laughs> little uh, my, my mate, um, Tommy, he got bashed by seven blokes in the city and lost, like, had to have his head cut open and lost partial sight and an eye and whatever else. He was on track for the military. Uh, yeah. he, his story is remarkable. He's such a fucking killer bloke. Um, grew up in the same area as me and whatever else. He's a lot younger than me. Um, and so he, after that, he got diagnosed with ADD, which walk-up start for that kid, Jesus Christ. Um he always was ever since I knew him, but it made all the sense. And I went to his doctor because I thought, well, if this doctor can deal with Tom, he can deal with me. So I went in and did the ADD questionnaire and he goes, little, uh, like, not tiny, like, Asian fella, very proper in a suit. He's a psychiatrist, right? First trip to a psychiatrist, probably overdue. And he, uh, and he, he says, what do you reckon you got? I'm like... I just looked at him. I go, how the fuck would I know, David? That's why I'm paying you two hundred and sixty dollars for forty minutes. Jesus. <laughs> and I, yeah, and I, and he just laughed. 
he laughed. And then I'm like, and then he's like, all right, well, you've got ADD. And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> and he goes, and he laughs at me again. I go, don't fucking laugh at that. And he's like, well, aren't you relieved? I go, I don't think it's going to make a lick of difference, David. And I go, what, because it's got a name? How's it going to change anything? How's go, my next question? A tablet. I bet you there's a tablet for it. And he goes, yeah, there is. I said, well, there you go. Imagine that. So, yeah, but and he, I'm like, like, are you sure? And he's like, you answered. He sort of looked at me and he goes, Brad, you answered yes to basically every question. And it goes right back to your primary school. I'm like, oh, all right. If you're right, that would explain a few things. But, yeah, so um, that that was probably part of it all, right? And, and now I'm yeah. thinking about it too. Now I'm thinking about it. It would explain a, a lot of, like, I struggled with homework, right? And um, at the time I was right into um, – right into getting down to the boxing gym and getting the bag and training with the guys and whatever else. And I was fine. I, I was real good at application to things that I liked and I struggled yep. with things that I didn't. So, yeah, perhaps it makes all the sense, Tom. But, yeah, yeah got that's, out of there, that's got why... a job and then oh, sorry, the rest is history. No, that's it. Go. Go. Oh, I was going to say that the reason I, I, I asked and, and I want to know about the, the diagnosis thing because – um, you know, like you said, we all sort of joke about it with each other, like guys like you, me, and Sean, like, oh, I'm ADD as fuck, right? Fucking oh, Gorman. Um, Jesus Christ. I've got to tell a story about that before we're done. I'm going to edit his name out of the podcast because uh, uh, he doesn't deserve as much attention as I give him. <laughs> he, he's a miscreant. <sighs> he's a good – I love Sean. He's a great dude, man. Um, but anyway, what I was, what I was going to say was when people – get the diagnosis or look for the diagnosis, I used to think, oh, it doesn't make any difference. You just add an acronym to what you already are, right? But I think what you said, it might add a bit of context and a bit of explanation to things that have happened in, in your past. And it might add a bit of, uh, what's the word I'm after? Uh, it might say flavour the future for you. So you might be like, for me, understanding myself for the way I learn, the way I think, the way I act helps me temper myself to certain situations and accept certain things and give up on other on other things. It, is that kind of what it did for you? It hasn't to date. Okay. It hasn't to date. So I have a real problem with taking the meds. Um, yeah. I don't like I don't like them. Right, and if I take if I take Enough, it makes a profound difference. But then I struggle with the whole winding down aspect and um, at the end of the day, I take the short acting stuff. So, yeah, I, I don't know, man. I've got a – like a lot of us, I've got a real strong narrative that I'm a, a lazy guy and that <laughs> I am a procrastinator as opposed to I procrastinate. So Yeah, okay. Yeah. Which, it, yeah. But it's hard. I mean, it's hard to run a business. My business model's fucking stupid. Like, I don't run classes. I only run private lessons, and it's the way I've always done it. Um, and I'm responsible for 99% of what needs to be done in the business. And it, look, man, it gets in the way. I've had whole. I've had swathes of time where my email replies to potential clients have been really shitty. It's affected my business for sure. 
Um, and I've sort of got some steps in place to mitigate some of it now. Um, but, you know, it is what it is, man. And, and you know, I, I've known plenty of people that have had ADD that describe it as a superpower. And I believe you're in that group. Like, you you work it really well. Um, and I've got a, a very dear friend who happens to have, like, 13 degrees to include psychiatry and philosophy and PhDs in those two and whatever else. And he has a very, very different take on ADD. He has a very different take. I'm not going to try and give it to you, but, like, yep. he, he approaches it. So he's a psychotherapist. He's not a psychologist and he's not a psychiatrist. I said to him, why, did, why didn't you go to psychology? He goes, because they're shit. What's his <laughs> <laughs> What's the psychotherapist difference between the other two then? Um, oh, I'm not going to do this justice. If, I was going to say, if you dare to explain. Yeah, I'm not going to do it justice, but um, he considers evolutionary, the evolutionary development very highly in a way that most psychologists can't because there's such a heavy bent towards cognitive behavioural therapy as the primary mode of operation for a psychologist. I actually have another psychologist friend here that studied at the Freud Centre in London and learned psychoanalysis. And years ago, apparently, it was standard practice for psychologists to learn this, and now apparently it's not. Um, Someone out there will correct me if I'm wrong on that, but that's my, my understanding. Um, and so he's not sort of married to any one particular discipline. Um, yeah, and, okay. And so his, his take on it is – I'm not going to go in depth on it because I, I, don't, I, I don't understand it fully, right? He's given it to me three times and fucking typical ADD kid. Not all of it sat in my head, but there's an evolutionary aspect to it talking about where we put our attention and whatever else. And he's like, you've just got to – You've just got to harness it. And so he's, you know, he's given me stuff like walking meditation and whatever else to try and do. He's not my psychotherapist. He's just my mate, but he, like, throws ideas at me. So, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, remarkable guy, though. Remarkable guy. Um, but, yeah, man, so, the, like, it's a fucking got its challenges for me, for sure. Yeah. And is that if he dealt with it differently over time, like say like through your twenties and your thirties, or is it just a recent sort of thing where it's just, it's sort of been more at the forefront and you've been more aware of it. So I'm a fat fuck now, but traditionally most of my adult life, not all, but most of my adult life, I've been a pretty sort of fit, active kind of guy. So the times when I've managed it best, it's like two a day training sessions and a, and a good diet. Right, yeah. and I think that you're just so fucking knackered all the time, and and you know you, you've got, it's, dude. It's like getting a dog tired, you know. It's like getting a dog tired. It doesn't like it's just a tired dog. It expresses less behaviour because it's tired. It doesn't yeah. Necess, doesn't necessarily in and of itself fix anything. But this is still racing. A more tired dog. Potentially, yeah. But for me, I think that's that's where I've managed it well. But I've never really managed it because I didn't know what I had. I just thought, well, this is my brand of fucked. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> right. So, yeah, I wonder if in the future, like, you'd, you'll ponder on it more maybe or the way you look at it will change, the way you deal with it will change. I'd be curious, but that that's, yeah. you know, time yeah, will tell, man. Look, I've, I've, I've got some things I'm working towards with it, but, yeah, t- time will tell. There's, I think for me there will just be many, many small things that I need to nail on a daily basis to mitigate it optimally, but it will just probably still always be there would be my guess it is what it is anyway fuck it like it's part of who i am it is what it is um you know fuck, yeah say? well mate hit, hit us with the dog context right so when you're in your your teens your 20s your 30s at what point cool. did the dog stuff come along what was sort of the influencing right. that got you so so i mentioned that i used to used to train at a gym right um, and I was around dog trainers, and everyone there, they all did unarmed combat and whatever else, and then they also all owned protection dogs. So from the time I was 14, I was around protection dogs. No, I didn't own one. I wasn't allowed. Fuck did I try. I dragged my parents down to see a demonstration, um, and I was like, fuck, this is amazing. Like, And all of these guys, like... In a loose sense, they were sort of role models, right? Like they're the older guys that you're around. And they all were doing this. So I just thought, well, this is what you do and this is what dogs are. So we had a pet dog, but it was nothing. And But everyone was there. Like you go – the first dog that I really connected with was a pit bull named Angus and it was owned by a guy named Tom – um, I'd actually be really interested to see where Tom is these days. He's a big red dog, um, pit pit dog, and um, you know that pretty standard sort of old school mentality, like don't pat my dog. But Tom used to work at the gym I was at, so the dog training business ran out of the gym, like the offices, right, and whatever else, and sort of a lot of these guys were dog trainers on the weekend and they would just come in the gym and they'd like spar and whatever else work out. That was the culture. Um, and Tom let me get to know Angus. And so I would walk from my, back then probably year 11 high school and by now I was probably like 16-ish and I would walk down and I was teaching a class there. At that time I would teach like a a kickboxing class uh, for teenagers, right? It was my class. And uh, I was technically, I was good, but I was never tough. Didn't like getting hit. Too soft. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and then, uh, yeah, Tom let me get to know Angus. And, fuck, I loved him. He used to, like, I'd go, Angus. And he'd climb up on me and he'd just nuzzle his head into me and I'm like, this guy's fucking amazing. So that was like, I, that was the dog I wanted, was a pit-type dog. And then sort of fast forward through to probably my oh, – actually, there's one more thing I'll add there, right? So the guy that ran the place – he always had serious dogs, right? So Melbourne was at that time, and to some degree this is probably still true now, um, Melbourne was like the working dog capital of the country, 
And so these guys were always buying dogs, selling dogs, and it was like, you know, it was just on the other side of the golden age, right, for working dogs here. And, um, like, you had to look through the window before you went into the head dude's office because he'd have this fucking Rottweiler that would literally kill you. He was the only one that could handle yeah. his dog. Um, and, yeah, there were some people had some narrow misses, but that dog was under control. Drop. Definitely drop. You know, like, recall. So it's, it was very different training to what we see today, right? But it was effective and these dogs worked and it was all civil, um, no sport. And, yeah, that was what I sort of came up around. Like, I remember I, I'm, we moved gyms. So when I was 14 and I started at this gym, I would just see these magnificent black German shepherds just walk through the gym. Like blokes would bring their dog in and drop, you know, people that work there and drop their dog behind the counter and whatever else. It was just fucking normal, Tom. That was what I grew up around, right? But again, I didn't own one of these dogs, got to know Angus. And then um, again, when I was like 19, I was working some security and one of the guys that I work with had some great paying jobs for dogs and so we organized a dog for me but at that time i hadn't it was just before i left home i couldn't have a dog so that was disappointing so pretty much like i haven't bought one in a few years but i collect pocket knives and um on a very small scale i like you know a nice pair of nikes or something right what happened well i never had the flash shoes when i was a kid and i wasn't allowed to own pocket knives I've got a small I've got a small collection of watches, right? I wanted a watch when I was a kid and I had to wait until I was old enough. So everything that I wasn't allowed to have, <laughs> I fucking had. Right? Wasn't allowed to have a dog. What do I do now? I train dogs. So <laughs> fuck. Sounds um, like yeah, ADD so to then, me. Maybe. And then fast forward sort of from there, um, into my mid twenties, I didn't have a lot going on. And my mate backyard bred a litter of pits. And um, I wanted to get one and I went and saw the, the mate of mine that ran that school and he said, you're, he goes, because I just went to him, I said, I want it protection trained, which was illegal at the time um, and still is today because of our bullshit laws. And he said, yeah, I can put you on to someone. He goes, we'll get that done. Um, he goes, but you, you're not full-time anywhere right now, eh? I'm like, nah. He's like, take this number, right, call this guy and go here on a Wednesday night, next Wednesday. I'm like, why? And he goes, you're a young, fit bloke, right, and you move real well in the gym. He goes, you're good on your feet, which is probably the only reason I don't have an acquired brain injury from getting in stupid fights as a security guy is because I could move. Um, and he goes, yeah, um, go down here. He goes and just get exposed to this. He goes, you make a good decoy. Fuck's a decoy. So the dude gets bitten by dogs. He goes, you'll like it. It's good. <laughs> I go, yeah, maybe. He goes, just go. He goes, you'll learn a lot about yourself. I'm like, whatever. So I went down and then 
I went to where this training was conducted and got thrown in the deep end and I jumped on the phone to my missus at the time as I was driving out of there and I just said, that's it, I know what I'm doing. I'm doing this. I've just done it ever since. That was how I got into dogs. So I was, I was a decoy before I could teach a dog to sit. So you Not just dabbled dog. and just been exposed and been around dogs since your early teens, your mid-teens, until about I your mid-20s. Yeah. I knew it was a thing. I'd seen them work. I'd seen the fact that I was exposed to a culture where these dogs needed to be under stimulus control all the time and they needed to be willing to fuck people up should the need arise. And, that, and it was part and parcel of that culture that um, dogs were not loose. Right? They weren't just... It was, it was a very different culture to other parts of the Melbourne working dog world. So there's a section here that just wants angry dogs that won't let anyone within 10 feet of you. And that was not at all what, was, what I was exposed to. Yeah. There, was a lot of con- there was a lot of control work. Um, and the control work was compulsive. So, you know... That was how it was, and that was how I learned to train dogs. And then after that, um, this mate of mine put me into a dog trainer's course, and I did that, and I was the worst fucking student in the whole intake. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was the worst student in the whole intake. Why? But it's just handing him work, mate. Mm. I was the most attentive because you've got to remember, I'm every week I'm going out and working dogs, and – it's sort of like a trope, right? Like everyone talks about, oh, you know, in the old days. Yeah, well, literally when I had no money, I would put my last 50 bucks in the car and petrol and then I would drive the better part of an hour to go and watch dogs work for 20 minutes. Not work dogs, watch dogs work. Thank everyone profusely, get back in the car and drive home. At this stage, I was like, I was definitely living on my own then, and then I would just think about it all week, all week, and I was actively training dogs um, when I started my trainer's course, like within a month or two of that. So, yeah, and I was just training any dog I could get my hands on, basically, and I was bad at it, but I was passionate about it, and then just kept going, and so that pretty much. Brings me through to today, buddy. So would you say your formal dog, dog education, would you call it a sport dog education, a protection education, oh, or protection. whatever the content of that course? So protection. Okay. Civil, civil protection, general obedience. I went on and did a behaviourist course, which was an in-house course. I worked on the weekends for this business, uh, for a very large business, um, training dogs at a club level. And within a couple of years, um, so I was, I didn't own a dog at this point. I was training dogs, right? Um, in, in short order afterwards, I got a dog, but at this particular point, uh, I was just training anything I could get my hands on. And, um, I was the only instructor at the club that was allowed to teach advanced obedience, even though I didn't own a dog and I was acting, they used to have a floating behaviorist, right? Which was really just 
when people have questions outside the curriculum about general stuff, like you just float around and if people can grab hold of you and you can give them some advice and whatever else. As a business, it was it was a very well run business. Um, like in, in sorry, well set up. I don't really know how it was run, but it, it was um, well set up. It was very big. It was very successful, and that was my grounding. And then left there, and then went out on my own after about three years. Left there, went out on my own. I've been out on my own ever since. But it wasn't a, it wasn't. There was the pet obedience and behaviour side, and then the civil work was the the only protection work that I was exposed to. And then from there, I started to the place that I mentioned that I would drive to was a Schutzen club. And I started getting exposed to um, to Schutzen around that time, uh, which is now known as IGP. Um, yeah, and, and so I started getting exposed to that. And when I started that, because of the background that I'd come from, I used to look at that and go, oh, they're just fucking sport dogs, you know. They're just biting a sleeve. They're not working the man. Like, I, it took a long time for me to see the beauty in it. And then I was just I wanted to learn, learn, learn. You know what it's like. Like, learn, 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 learn. And I was just, I was a fucking pest. Like, any any class I was in, I was asking the most questions. Right? And I was one of the few in, in the trainer education. I was one of the few people that was involved in working dogs. Um. I was really probably here in Melbourne, my generation was the last year. So the course I did was the National Dog Trainers Federation course, but it was the last course before it became nationally accredited. So it was pass-fail. Gotcha. If you don't get enough marks, you don't pass. You were exposed to protection work, detection work. Like I got... I was at a fucking seminar for five days or something learning about detection work. Dude, I didn't understand shit. I was just trying to drink from a fire hose and getting every exposure that I could. And then went on from there and joined a Schutzen club, um, which is now, I believe, defunct. And I was exposed to some very interesting personalities there. And it was at that Schutzen Club that I learned that not everyone who's involved in dogs is in it because of the dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, um, that wound up, I wound up taking those people to VCAT because there were some fucking cocksuckers, some weak-spined cocksuckers there that were making up bullshit. Uh, and v, they tried to... What was that acronym, sorry? Hey? What was the acronym, sorry? V-TECH? Uh, V-CAT, Victorian Civil and Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Okay. So because it was an incorporated association, there were grievance procedures that weren't followed, and it was complete bullshit. Two people wrote anonymous letters uh, about, let's just say an encounter that I was involved in interstate at a uh, Rottweiler show with someone that called my mate's wife a piece of shit. Um, and this guy had narrowly beaten a rape charge and was well known for terrorising his wife and other women. And so he and I had a brief yet vigorous discussion 
outraged about why that was not appropriate. And word got back to the Schutzen Club because a couple of them were there. And then these two cockroaches wrote anonymous letters. One of the guys that wrote the anonymous letter was him and his wife, as it turns out. And he was the one that was, he was duplicitous. He was like, oh, this is bullshit, you know, mate, it shouldn't happen. But yeah, it was him. They were trying to get rid of me. Um, so they come a gutter and um, they were, they had to apologize to me, but I was getting gaslit hard. It was like, why are you doing this? I'm like, why am I doing what? I'm not doing shit. Like literally at that club, um, during this appeal this thing where I was told to come down and sit in front of the board and whatever else. Um, the fucking head guy, he is definitely on the spectrum. Whilst I'm laying out while this is bullshit and whilst I, I've, I've gone right through the legislation, I understand the Act, the Incorporated Associations Act, I'm pointing out where this has happened. He's turned his head upside down on the table and he's... Got reading underneath a packet of teddy bear biscuits. <laughs> How the fuck do you make that up, Tom? <laughs> you can't fucking make that up. Jesus uh... Christ. Yeah, and that, that was what this was all about. And so I, I tried to go back, but it wasn't going to work. It was really uncomfortable, and I didn't want to be around those people um, because I was treated like shit. And the irony of that was... There was some decoys that came out from Germany. One, you may have heard of them. There was a police officer named Bernard Flinks. He was on some early Leerberg videos you might have seen. I think Leerberg still sells that. I believe the DVD was Building Drive, Grip and Focus with Bernard Flinks. And he bought okay. out his decoy, which is a kid named Alex Bayer. And um, so we went to their seminar and then they'd come out again. And this cockroach that wrote one of these letters at this club, he calls me out of the blue. And I still remember answering the phone and he's like, how are you? And I'm like, in case you don't remember, mate, the last conversation that we had, you treated me very poorly. So explain to me why you're calling me now. And he goes, oh, yeah, no, you know, that wasn't good and I apologise and whatever else. And then he's like... So listen, I went to this seminar and he, he had this Malinois, right? And it was really clear this dog was prey-locked. So to get this dog to work in anything other than prey drive was very difficult. And I can still recall myself and a guy that was a mentor at the time, he'd visited the club and I'd been telling this guy, I think you should work this dog in defence, right? We should work him in defence because he's all prey right, and you'll get more power out of, the, out of this protection work if you add a little bit of defence into the dog, right? Um, do I need to explain that to folks listening? Mm, I don't think so, but if you want to give the wave tops, okay. go for it. No, 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 no. So I'd said this to him, dismissed it. The other guy said it to him. On a separate occasion, dismiss. I'd said it to him more than once. Um, but he knew it all, this guy, uh, the owner of the dog. And then, yeah, he's called me and he's like, oh, you won't believe it. I've just been out and paid $250, which nowadays it'd have to be 500 bucks to do a private session with this guy. And he goes, and 
he worked the dog in defence and the dog was amazing. I'm like, yeah, right, not unsurprising. And he goes, no one, no one's ever, no one's ever picked that before. He's amazing. I'm like, um, can't everyone fucking pick? Like I picked it. I told you a number of times. <laughs> such and such told you a number of times. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I go, so why the fuck are you calling me anyway? And he goes, well, I want you to come back to the club because no one there knows how to work a dog in defence like that and whatever. And I was privately, um, from the very start of all of this, uh, how do I phrase this? Uh, The easiest way to phrase it is, I, for about four years, I ran an illegal protection training club. Right? <laughs> okay. So I wanted to work dogs and that was the only way I could do it. And so it ran for four years, never had a single safety incident. I had a few fl- cl- close calls, but never had a single safety incident. And that's another story about why that ended. It wasn't my fault. This yeah, Working dog people are an interesting bunch. But um, a friend of a friend bought the whole thing crashing down because he took his dog off leash where he shouldn't take his dog off leash and caused a big drama and cost me money and to try and fix it and whatever. But the club never recovered after that. Um, but, yeah, and so he said, come back to, come back to the Schutzen Club and work my dog. And I went, yeah, I don't think so. Right? But I'll think about it. Of course I'm never fucking going back. He's a cocksucker. Like, he, he, he treated me like a fucking piece of shit. And anyway, I don't know what he's doing now. He's probably not in dogs. Um, but I take great comfort. Actually, I can't say what I was going to say. I'll tell you off camera. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> There's got to be a line, Tom. I've got to draw a line. Uh, but, yeah. That's so, right. So that was how that went. And that was the end of my dealings in Schutzen for... Ooh, eight or ten years, I reckon. It just left such a bad taste in my mouth. And to be honest, at that time, and I, it is like this now, but it's not as much like this. Like Schutzen was a very elitist group of people, right? And there was a lot of politics between organisations, which still hasn't changed. It's a, it's a little more united than it was then. Um, but, yeah, it's just it was quite a toxic sort of a culture and I, I think that that toxicity easily permeates right across the working dog world because whenever you have uh, people that want to own dogs that bite and I think that amplifies when it's illegal right it attracts a certain kind of person but yeah so that was it and then I pretty much um, waved off doing any um, participating in sport for a long time. But I also recognise that, you know, there's a lot more to training than compelling a dog into a drop, right? And I was seeking that out and I was doing that style of work with my own dogs. Even though I had no interest in competing, I just recognised this is what a well-trained dog looks like. Um, so, yeah, in amongst all that, I developed some dogs and sold some dogs and um, whatever else. I owned a whole bunch of dogs um, Dobermans, uh, like an Australian Bulldog, um, Rottweilers, Shepherds, Malinois, 
Um, so I got a, a, a decent grounding in what it is to own these dogs. And I had a couple of very high-end dogs, like very serious, very, very hard-biting dogs um, that were super emotionally stable. Um, and, you know, these are dogs that if I owned them now, I would never sell them. I, but you know, it is what it is. Um, it's, it's all that learning. And, yeah, and so then I just kept going through. And then when I got um, snapped, my current Malin oh, – I actually, before that, yes, yeah, so I, I had, I've had a few Malin one now. But, like, yeah, I started training my Mal's in that style and then just continued through. And through my friendship with Brad Thurlow from Monsimbi – German Shepherds up there in uh, up in Sydney. Um, he saw the work. He's a close friend of mine. Uh, very 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 nice guy. I love him to death, and and his wife Karen too. And he, we would like he owned Snaps owns Snap's sister named Tilly, and he's got a bunch of IPO titles on that dog now. But we were sort of sharing training footage every day and and he said man you should really compete with this dog because the training is very good like ah guess listen do it with our club join our club he goes and he knows the story the the backstory and i'm like nah it's fucking bullshit he goes listen our club's different we don't have any bullshit none so i joined the club and i did a mat test with snap and then i did a bh with snap and yeah, that was how I had – I've had some involvement with that curriculum and that club. Um, working canine club is a great bunch of people. And that, that's it, man. So then just kept chasing it down, keep trying to learn about detection and protection work. I don't do protection work for private people anymore. Like, there's too – like – there's too many cocksuckers out there and the liability is too high because I've got a real business and a facility and all of that. Um, but, yeah, decoying was my jam for a long time. I still, I still love it. Yeah. I'd still, I would, I'd get fucking injured right now, but, like, I'd still like putting on a suit and working dogs. See, it uh, sounds like that your exposure to the club probably had a twofold effect on you. One, it probably drove you away from the from the crowds, so to speak, just into your own realm, doing your own thing. But B, yeah. it sounds like it's really amplified your love of the decoy stuff. No, so that pre-existed the club. I would decoy for that club and then I'd go and run my own club. Yep. Right? Um, but, yeah, it's um, I, I had that there anyway. Um. Yeah, I had, I had that there anyway, that existed. But you're right, it drove me away from the sport and um, it made me much more suspicious of people in the dog world and it drove me uh, keep a smaller circle. Yeah. So what about methods then in terms of methodology and, the, and your mentality toward the, the training side? How did that change going from the sport slash protection world into the pet dog world? What, was there a catalyst for going to pet? I was, all, I was always and, doing and it all st- starting your own time. business? I was okay. always doing it all at the same time. I was always training pet dogs. I was always doing behavioural work. I was always working uh, while I had that club. I was always working those dogs and um, 
you know, for the period of time I was at that club, the Schutzen Club, I was doing that decoy work as well. Um, so, yeah, I was I was always doing it. But pet dogs are where the money is. If you want to be a working dog trainer, it's it's very rare um, to be able to make a living simply developing dogs for law enforcement type stuff. And and look back then, people were not paying the money. Agencies were not paying the money that they're paying now. And um, there's been a big change. Obviously, not every organisation is very open, and I'm certainly not – I don't hold myself up there as being some kind of authority, certainly not on how all these agencies operate. But the agencies these days are much more open to external input and the, the culture is much more leaning towards that US-style model of, like, let's have external developers get these dogs to a point where we can employ them, right? And it's it's worth our time and money. And you've seen that shift yourself, even in the last few years. Yeah, I think, yeah, like you said, it's so, very similar to the US. They, they're big on that. Hmm. So yeah, it's it's um, yeah, that's it, man. And so probably I teach a I teach a lot of dog bite prevention work. I've had about thirty seven hundred people through my programs. Travelled all over Australia doing that. Um, I, I train a lot of local government offices. Um, got um, a couple of very successful courses that are quite detailed in that regard and um, I'm revamping those at the moment. So plenty of runs on the board there. Got to travel all over Australia doing that. Um, that sort of died off a lot with COVID. It still hasn't really come back yet, I don't think. Um, and, and that was sort of how I leveraged the decoy stuff that I knew into something that was legally acceptable because in this state, People that develop dogs for law enforcement work, it's very, very easy to cross a line into illegality. So this is not the state that you would be in if you wanted to do that. If you wanted to be like Jace, right? Um, Jace Kelly from Canine Solutions, or you wanted, you know, like, and you want to develop dogs, like our legislative framework here is just fucking idiotic. And it's it's not very permissive, yeah. Do yeah. It's not a permissive environment at all. So, yeah, pet dog work and then probably, uh, I don't know exactly when, probably like I've had this place for probably eight, maybe more years. Uh, it was the first indoor dog training centre in Melbourne. Um, I, yeah, it's something that I always wanted to do. And... Yeah, I probably didn't do a lot with it for the first couple of years, to be honest, because I was always travelling, presenting. Um, but, yeah, and then that pretty much brings me till now, man, and so now I do a lot of, I do a lot of behavioural work um, and probably the style of work that I do a lot of, like I work with a bunch of folks on more happy, res very responsive obedience type work um, plus the behavioural stuff. I work with a lot of anxious dogs and a lot of aggro dogs and those two things intertwine uh, in the, especially in the pet dog population but not exclusively. 
Um, yeah. So yeah, that's and that's it, man. Like that's just what I do. So mate, Fuck, tell me because your business. <laughs> that's why I got you on, bro. Um, and that's what you're supposed to do, Brad, on a podcast when you're the guest. So tell me about starting out, <laughs> starting out Canine Services International, because that's what your business is called. Um, in that, because I want to kind of get into the Melbourne dog flavour, and then I want to eventually get onto COVID and post-COVID stuff. Um, Tell me about starting up that business and how it transitioned from like just the pet stuff to winning all these, I don't know if you call them contracts, but like the bite prevention work with some agencies and developing dogs and hosting seminars. Like, tell me about the evolution of that. You might need to steer me a bit more on that. Um, so, I like if you want to operate as a dog trainer, then um, it needs to be at least somewhat financially viable, right? And there's more pet dogs than there are working dogs. And as I've discussed, it's not a very permissive environment. So in the start, all I wanted to do was work with aggressive dogs, right? And you'll still see, like, the number one question, if I put out something on Oops, Instagram Sorry, right mate, now, you think your audio's cutting out right, a bit what there. What would you like me to put out? Dog trainers, what would you like me to teach a seminar on? It'll always come back aggression. Always. Nice. Number one, how to work with aggression. How to work with aggression. Yeah, well, I'm... Yeah, gotta be careful how I say this. That can be a somewhat deflating seminar to teach. I think I've found a way to do it now, moving forward. But I find that teaching seminars on aggression can, on dealing with dogs that behave aggressively, you always wind up in a pet dog population dealing with anxious dogs. So if people aren't across working with anxious dogs and they want to work with what they consider to be aggressive dogs, if they're not, if they don't have some kind of more nuanced understanding, they're going to struggle to do that in a pet dog market. And in, you know, and there's plenty of, there's plenty of work. You've seen them. There's plenty of working dogs out there that people are convinced are just fucking land sharks. And the reality is they're just very insecure, high drive, anxious dogs. You know, so that's yeah. what it is. But it's hard. To, it's hard to teach an aggression seminar if people you want you have to if you're talking about and these are pet dog people, right? It's you wind up discussing anxiety. It's, it's unavoidable because they're so often intertwined, right? And to some degree, it gets a little bit deflating because I think a lot of dog trainers out there think that like. It's some crazy advanced skill set to work with dogs with aggression issues. And the reality is it's just real, like a lot of us, just real good quality basic stuff and like a working understanding of emotion, right? And, you know, the, the number one bit of advice that I give to more junior dog trainers that tell me that they want to do that is like, well, build a focused heel in your dog. Right, and make sure that you can demonstrate happy, responsive, reliable, basic obedience commands. And um, I, I don't think people like hearing that when you teach a seminar on aggression. I think they think there's some secret source to it. It's like, well, you got to lock your basics down. If you can't build behaviour, if you can't work with drive, working against it, 
and then trying to stop aggression. If you want to do a really good job of it, like if you want to create, as I say, a meaningful, sustainable, long-term solution for the dog and the handler, then you have to be across that stuff, in my opinion. Simply going in and just crunching a dog because it's behaving aggressively is not always going to be a, a wise move. So how did you, like over time then, how did your menta- so your mentality toward dog training, so let's just say, you're talking about emotion just then, right? Dog emotions and some of this nuanced sort of stuff, but an understanding of the basics. Wasn't where were really you? A discussion 20 years ago. Exactly. So where were you 20 years ago on that? Were you, was that, were you sort of asking yourself, fuck, there's got to be more? Or were you just Punish like, I guess this I is it. Like Sit down. Reinforce heal. anything I like. Uh, so, okay, I used to punish anything that I didn't like and reinforce anything that I liked, and I was very good at it. I was very good at it. But in amongst all of that, I took some boarding and training contracts. I think the highest number of dogs I was responsible for training at the time was 26, uh, 27, something like that. And I can tell you right now, the quality of training that those dogs get... Sorry, I need to put some... I need to put another little bit of colour in that. So the the way that I was selling that training was outcome-based. And if you're going to put a dog into a boarding and training scenario, and I was taking dogs for, like, I did a loose-leash walking course and it was, like, three, four days, right? There's only one way that you get that done, and that's to be heavily compulsive. There's only one way it happens. Right, and, and anyone that says anything otherwise doesn't understand training dogs at a commercial level. Um, fight me about it. <laughs> well, no. talk, talk, talk us through it because, I mean, when I, when I do loose lead or when I used to do loose lead stuff, it was compulsive, right? But it wasn't like a fucking come here. Like there, w- there would be – it would be about my body movement, but it would all be with the leash, right? Leash, like the, the leash would do the talking. What, what's, what are the other options that, that people talk about, like, you know, feeding in a heel position sort of stuff? What are you talking about there? So in that context, when I was taking these dogs, let's say I took a dog for two weeks and I had, and, you know, to learn sit and drop and whatever else. When you sell that service and you say, you're saying to someone, when you pick your dog up, your dog will do these things. So at that stage of dog training, I would say for probably – my first eight years, like, I was just a fucking meathead dog trainer. That's what I'd learned. I learned some great stuff from some great people too. I'm not shitting on people that taught me. And everyone that had a hand in me learning stuff um, was teaching me the best that they understood. But obviously time marches on, right? So it's easy to look back retrospectively and say that wasn't a very clever way of doing things. Um But, yeah, so I learned to be very, very good at being very, very compulsive and um, also learned to be very good at play because I really didn't use food at that time, right, Um, and not to any great degree. And, you know, that shifted over time. So, anyway, I had a lot of experience at just crunching, crunching, crunching dogs and then – Around that time, like I'm, I'm training all of these dogs, and every day, seven days a week, training dogs. And um, 
I was starting to, and I was starting to play with electronics, right? Like starting to use the old dog trees and whatever else. And I just started noticing more because I'd been around for longer and I was constantly watching and constantly like questioning, like, is this good? Is this optimal? Like, and you, you sort of realize after a period of time, I'm actually creating certain problems that I wasn't present to. So then you just go about filling in the blanks, right? And then it was just fucking relentlessly self-critical. <laughs> yeah. And then you just start noticing stuff. I still remember I sat down for a meal with a guy that I knew and um, that was like I'd started working out emotion. Right, and the importance of it. I can't say I had a good framework for it, but I'd started to see a lot of things in my own work. And he he was like, he gave me a fist bump, and he's like, "Cool, like you get the emotional side of things now." He goes, "Now you're on, now you're on track to really start improving." Go, oh, cool. But yeah, and so so that was then. I ran a, a two or three of those contracts. Um, Got heavily fucked over by a guy in the industry to the tune of about 150 grand. So, again, yeah, he's a fucking piece of shit. And then tried to assassinate my character afterwards. But um, he's had to move states a whole bunch of times. He would just like get dogs from breeders and then not do anything with the dogs um, and then just keep handing them back. And people know him for, people know him for who he is and what he's about. Um, so, yeah, is that a, a widely ended. known name that you're happy to drop on the podcast? I just can't see. I'm not scared of it. I'd be happy to give that bloke a knuckle sandwich if he spoke shit to me. <laughs> um, it was funny because he spoke a lot of shit about me and I saw him at a conference. I'm not, I'm not championing violence, but I do believe that as a bloke, like sometimes a punch in the mouth is an eloquent solution. Um. And, yeah, he, he was talking a lot of shit and he was fucking, like, mad-dogging me when all his mates were around and then I, I was walking out of the toilets as he was walking towards the toilets and he got real avoidant real fast when his mates weren't around. Okay. <laughs> um, so, tell yeah, me off so, air. Anyway, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear that, who that yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You'll, you'll, know, you'll know the name and you'll laugh. Um, oh, okay. But, yeah, but yeah anyway, so... Um, that, that all ended that way. And, you know, there was a whole lot of drama for me surrounding that. And, um, but that was about the time I started to work out emotion and, you know, I started to, I had a good working understanding. So at that Schutzen club that I went to, right, the head guy there, very egotistical, definitely on the spectrum. Um, and all of his terminology was asked backwards. So if he said positive reinforcement, what he meant was negative punishment, right? So it actually helped me. That was probably the single greatest thing I got out of that because you couldn't convince him otherwise because his ego was too big. Like the term is hedonic, right? So from the dog's perspective, the hedonic perspective. And he didn't understand that. He didn't understand the hedonic perspective. So he had all the words, but he had it all backwards. But it was actually super fucking helpful for me because I could learn things off him as long as in the conversation I could immediately flip it around. So it was real good. It was real good. 
I learned a lot about how I don't want to train dogs. Like I saw this guy take a Rottweiler that was bred by someone that wasn't him and never asked the girl, has anyone handled this dog before? How have you trained this? Whatever else. Just took the dog on a pinch collar and went rip, rip, and just buckled this dog into a drop. Yeah. It was just pure ego. Like now, I'd fucking collar that prick. But I was just dumbfounded. I couldn't believe it. And then um, I, I saw him like I was exposed to forced retrieves. You know the old – have you seen an old school forced retrieve? No, I haven't. So the one I remember best was a very strong Rottweiler, a very driven Rottweiler. And you, the dog would need to be strong to get through this. So the dog was back tied to a post – with a pinch collar on and just started fucking giving it to the pop, 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 like popping in towards him and just created all this fucking aggression and frustration in the dog and then presented the dumbbell to the dog and the dog goes crunch because it was the nearest thing to the dog and all the pressure went away and he just let the dog breathe, pats it on the head a little bit. So I was exposed to a lot of that old school stuff. This guy would sharpen his pinch collars. Oh, I don't give a fuck what you say. If you're sharpening pinch collars, you are a fucking ass clown. Mate, let, let's, I want to use that as a segue in, into a couple of things, right? So obviously your method has changed over time. You've educated yourself. You know, I've, from never the, sharpened, I've never sharpened a pinch collar, mate. <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know that. Um, so you, it makes no fucking sense. If anyone understands how a pinch collar works, it makes no fucking sense. Yeah. So, but what I mean is, like, you've you've come from like an old school, in inverted commas, old school, short sword and protection sort of world into the pet dog world, where you you have a better understanding about emotion. There's a bit of nuance. You've got to, you know, you've got to deal with clients, people's fur babies, that type of stuff. Um, I know. I select away from the fur baby clientele. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I just I use that as like a placeholder for lack of a better Fair term. Enough, but, yeah. Um, what, what do you what do you think now when you see other people in the, in the industry that do things like that? Because you're you're I imagine you're an advocate for things like e collars and pinches if used correctly, right? But then you see these people that are probably haven't moved an inch since twenty years ago when when you were training when you first started training. Like, how do you reconcile that in in your head? How do you how do you see those people? Anything I'm critical of, like 99% of what I'm critical of, I've done. So I don't make these statements from some lofty, holier-than-thou perspective, Tom, right? But, um, you know, fuck. There's, there's one dude, and you will know exactly what I'm talking about, who really, truly believes. He's an ex-RAF handler, and he really, truly believes that he is like a gift to dogs and dog training and the guy's a fucking numbskull, right? Nothing has changed from the many years ago that he was a handler at the RAF, right? Nothing has changed in the way that he operates. He operates purely on a dominance-based model and he's he's an he, he can write and he can speak, but he knows half of fuck all compared to what he thinks he knows and he thinks he understands. And I look at that guy 
who's got a very high self-opinion and I just go like part of me goes I want like I wonder if an ego like that would be useful to me because you must be able to get a whole lot of stuff done if you're if you truly believe that you're eating a bit, it must be a nice place to be sometimes. In some <laughs> regards, it must be very empowering, you know, like to be so fucking sure of yourself all the time. Um, but I, I look at what they practice and I think that it's, uh, it's a net negative for the industry and people like that give the argument to the purely positive and force-free dog training community on a silver platter. Yes. I agree. I know, I know the guy you're talking about, I don't have anything to do with, with that guy or know much Whoa. about him, but I, I, I 100%, I agree with you. Like there are people out there that are just not helping the cause that are just, they think that they're the ones championing the argument for a prong or for an e-collar or something, but really they're just going, just fucking throw a prong on him and this is balanced training, burp, burp, burp. And you're probably sitting there shaking your head going, you're going, dude. <laughs> yeah. When I came yes. into dogs, Tom, 20 years ago, right? And there are plenty of people out there that have trained more dogs than me and have been training longer than me. So I'm not saying that 20-year figure like to sort of put myself at some kind of zenith of the industry. But it was it, it's a reasonable period of time. Like I'm starting to get much better now at like how I deal with stuff. Um, but I, I look at... I look at that balanced training term. I started out, I identified as a balanced trainer, right? That balanced training that I was introduced to was from people that trained very compulsively, right? And I, and I don't think that we met. So there's a dude named Stephen R. Lindsay, right? He's published this, these three tomes, these real thick books, like textbooks on dog training. And and you've seen them, haven't you? You've got them? I think I've given them to you. I've, I've got all three. I've read half yep. of the first one, and it was intense. Dude, intense. I actually know a guy, I can tell you who off camera, that told me that he read them all cover to cover, right? And he, he and the figure that he gave me, I can't remember what it was. It was like in four days or something like that. I'm like, you're speaking shit. Bro, it was like... Eating dry he's wheat not, bix with cinnamon. He's not – he this particular guy, he's not dumb, but he's not that smart. Um, yeah, they're reference books for me. But anyway, so he coined this term sinopraxic, sino being dog, praxic meaning doing, right? And sinoprax – so Lindsay was the guy that was responsible for the US Superdog program done out of Lackland Air Force Base, I believe, right? So this is where this, I believe, the biosensor training for puppies comes in, which is where they, you know, you take a puppy before it even opens its eyes and you expose it to cold and you expose it to warm and, you know, you turn it upside down and all of this stuff to try and offer the, like, to try and produce a super dog, like a dog that can be employed by military or police, whatever else. He did all of that research. And when I heard him speak, I think it was 2010, um, he he had massive regret about his involvement in that, and he would tell stories about how he saw literally truckloads of dogs just be shipped off 
because they washed out and they would be experimented on or whatever else. I can't remember the exact specifics of what he said, but it had a big impact on him. Yeah. Stephen R. Lindsay has, you know what, I'll say it this way, Temple Grandin, familiar with Temple Grandin? Negative. So look up, yeah, look up Temple Grandin, very interesting woman. Um, I'm, I couldn't say that I'm across all her works, but I know who she is and a bit of what she's about. And she's for sure on the spectrum. She's a very different human, but has produced wonderful work. Um, Lindsay has a ridiculous mind in that way, right? He's wild intellectual. Um, Anyway, he put together this term sinopraxic dog doing. Now, interestingly, my understanding is that sinopraxic training can't be conducted where the, like, where the application of the dog is exploitative, right? So technically speaking, my understanding is that technically speaking, you can't conduct sinopraxic training for like a military dog, right? But... That's his distinction. I think in practicality, you can take the same approach. It's just that it doesn't meet his definition of that term. So anyway, sinopraxic training, right, is based on, he created this thing called the Lima model, right, which is least invasive, minimally aversive. Aversive means unenjoyable, right, for anyone that doesn't know what that means. So then the Lima model is essentially means, and this is where the term balance training comes from, right? So I believe Lindsay coined it and it was like, this is balance training. You follow the Lima model. So least invasive, minimally aversive. If I want to teach a dog to walk on a loose leash in a way that's compliant with sinopraxic training, right? I can teach it mutually incompatible behavior. I can build its desire to walk beside me. I can build its engagement so that it looks at me more right? Um, I can teach it to walk backwards beside me. I can teach it the calisthenic skill of executing a tight left turn. All of these things contribute to a dog walking on a loose leash really well, right? But that doesn't mean none of those things necessarily stop the pulling on the leash, particularly where that's been heavily conditioned. And I'm just picking this as an example because we mentioned loose leash walking before, yep. right? So within balanced training, right, to train sinopraxically, you would – it's that all of those things that I just discussed, and there's probably more, right, they help the dog to start to learn what to do. So I'm training the dog for action, right? Take these actions. But then within the balanced training framework as Lindsay – outlined it, there is also the potential to train the dog for abstinence, such as don't pull on that leash. But you can see if you do all the stuff at the start, there's less punishment required to get that dog to stop pulling. And the dog, it's pretty easy to see, the dog knows what to do, not just what not to do. Are you still with me, brother? Yeah, so it's almost like um, building an alternate incompatible behaviour with the undesired one. Yes. Yes. So if I want, if I prefer, um, Esther Schalke introduced me to, so that's Dr. Esther Schalke. She, we just had her here, actually, because I'm. I, I did say that, yeah. I'm, I'm friends with them. So these, fuck these two. 
Esther and her husband Hans. So Esther's just about to take over responsibility for the entire German military working dog program. Jesus. Yep. And Hans, her husband, uh, he was an operator with the SEK, the paramilitary police. Um, Yeah, he was an operator, canine handler, went on to become like a canine trainer. They met because Esther was working for the University of Hanover and they rejigged the SEK's training program and they did it all properly academically. They removed – I'll pull these figures out of my ass, but it was something like they removed 80% of the positive punishment um, from their program and they increased the pass rate of their dogs by something like 65%. So – I mean, these two are fucking amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah, and Esther introduced me to this concept of this thing called the dead dog criteria, right? So if my dog is going to pull on the leash, right? So, and this is, I use this with my clients, right? Oh, my dog pulls violently on the leash. Cool. How would you prefer him to behave? And most of the time, that client will turn around and go, uh, not pull. I go, cool. So let's run the do- dead dog criteria. Can I get my dead Rottweiler to not pull on the leash? <laughs> yes. That's, that's definitely something I can get. All right, so then that's not an action because a dead dog can do that. All right? Now, what if we break that down and we go, can I get my dead dog to maintain station at my left side. No, a dead dog can't do that. Oh, that's an action that we could train the dog to do or a series of actions. It might be a complex skill. Does that, am, I, am I talking too high yeah, level no, no. Here, bro? Or? No, 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 no. If, so I'm just going to – I'm very, I'm I'm very self-conscious gonna... talking in this depth because I, I – I, I, I'm fucking sure as shit that your audience is going to find this as fucking boring as a wet week in Melbourne. But I'm hoping that my audience is somewhat like me and they do find it interesting. But let me let me attempt to paraphrase and see if I've got the essence of what you're saying. For lack of a of a better understanding of what you're saying, is the criteria if a dead dog can do it, and if a dead dog Sorry, if a dead dog can do it, it's not a it's not a good criteria. And if a dead Correct. dog can't do it, it's also not a good criteria. So you've got to be somewhere in between. No, no if if a dead dog can do it, it's not an action because a dead Correct. dog can't yes, take that, an that's action. Fine. Right. Yes. So then, can I get my dead Rottweiler to um, to stare at me? No. Can I? So that means, can I get my live dog to pay more attention to me, to look at me in my eyes? Yes, it's an action I can train for it. So if you think about this lemur model here, it's actually really practical. People shit on it a lot, but it's actually really practical. So um, you can get the, teach these dogs what you want them to do. And then at some stage in there, I'm not saying it's not the – sometimes it might be the first thing, sometimes it might be the last, but then you're also t- teaching the dog and abstain from that behaviour. So if my dog's lived three years, pulling on the leash, pulls me to every tree, he wants to piss on, 
pulls me to chase every cat that he passes on the street. That, as you've seen, that can be really hard to get a dog to give up. But I can teach the dog all these other things. All of them interfere with him doing that one problem thing, which is the pulling on the leash. All of them give him an alternate coping strategy when he wants to do that, right? And then I can also come in and say, and that thing that you're now doing less, right, don't do that. So I need less punishment. So do you think that people do poo-poo things like the Lima method or the sinopraxic stuff or they ignore it? Do you think they do that because they're looking for the new shiny thing and that it's hard terms to, like it's that hard are to, old news? It, I don't think people understand it. Um, and I think that, as in all areas of life, people are quick to shit-can something that they don't understand. And I also think that if someone's not, not across that, it's very easy for them to say, yeah, but I've been doing this for five years this way and it works. But I, I think that we have to be very careful of simply doing things because they work. I'm not saying that that is never a justifiable reason. I'm just saying that we have to be careful of it. Because if I was still doing, if I just wanted, in my, my own case, if I was doing what worked, I was making money crunching dogs, you know, 13 to the dozen and forcing them to sit and not using food and whatever else. But for me, like, just because it works isn't a great justification for continuing that practice, right? Yeah. So I think it's at the end of the day, it's a human training a dog. We're all creatures of habit. And also, like, a lot of people don't like feeling dumb. And if you start leaning into something like that, people might feel a loss of control over that or they might be confronted. Like this thing behind me on the wall that you can see, this is the Yerkes-Dodson curve, right? Um, this is on the whiteboard still because Ben Gertz from Causing Canine was here teaching a seminar, right? And... Uh, that, that uh, what is it? Sorry, it's not a Yerkes-Dodson curve. I got that wrong. Dunning, it's a Dunning-Kruger. <laughs> yeah, Yerkes-Dodson's different, right? Um, or Yerkes, I think they say it. But, yeah, so it can, it can force you to realise, fuck, like I've been doing this, but, like, there's a whole different world of other shit that I could be doing differently and maybe it works better for some dogs and whatever else. I don't necessarily think that's easy for people. Um, I, I guess I'm lucky in that, like, I'm super critical of everything that I do. Um, and so, like, for me, it's just second nature, nature to go, can I do this better? I do I, – I was probably given that advantage, like, through the formal education that I had right at the start of getting into dogs. Um, I didn't have an opportunity to, like – I was taught to be very critical and, and to, like, seek new information and stuff. Yeah, I think I think people can be people can be very dogmatic when it comes to the yeah. dog training methodology. And I've got this theory, and it's probably fits it fits in with the, the Dunning Kruger effect. People are nice and comfortable and happy to sit on that peak of Mount Stupid, right? That's that first little peak, a little bit of knowledge, yep. and you feel like an expert. No one wants to go to that bottom of the I forgot what it's called, the Canyon of Despair, or when you feel like an idiot at the bottom because you realise how much you don't know. Yeah. 
And I, I think that sitting on the peak of Mount Stupid absolves him of having to go through the embarrassment of going the down, going the, the down of the graph and then the work of yeah. then having to go back up the graph, if that makes sense. I think that's why people can be so dogmatic and so uh, so binary in the way that they apply their dog training methodology and they sit in these armed camps. So mm. I think that's probably why there's a lot of ego in the in the dog world. Yeah. Because and people I, attach I their ego right. to their dogs. I, so I try, and I'm not saying what anyone else should do. I try to attach my ego to continually trying to get better. Right? But I'm used to doing that, right? So I don't know what it is for another human who's had a different life experience and a different set of influences to have to do that. But I, to, to go back to what you were saying before, right? I look at people like that guy I mentioned that like everything's dominance based and um, you know heavily punitive and whatever else and I just go that guy's a problem that guy's a problem he's not helping anyone and so to again tie this back to what I was saying earlier right um, balance training when I started dog training was laid out in that way that Lindsay's put it forward. Since then, the term balance training, um, I believe, has become a bucket as opposed to, to a camp. And as we've seen the purely positive and force-free agenda grow in the dog training world, uh, which is like, so that mate of mine I mentioned with all the degrees, like he's across this stuff and he goes, this is woke culture in dog training. And he is not a fan of woke culture, right? He, he doesn't think it does anything good for society, right? Like the level of wokeism, it's particularly prevalent in academia and whatever else. Um, and, you know, as the purely positive force-free community, they're fucking organised and they're funded, right? You look at, like, any time someone tries to ban a pinch collar... You look on the Facebook comments and it's like pinch collars are pinch collars don't hurt dogs because I trained my Kelpie in 1986 with a pinch collar and Jerry was good. <laughs> yeah, and it's almost like you get the two extremes arguing with each other and then right. and, and and, but you look at the voices. So I'm not saying there's not idiotic voices on both sides, right? But what I am saying is, like, purely positive force free community, they're organised. They've got a lot of academics who have got all the words, right? But those that that agenda is very much like COVID, right? As soon as you put any real intellectual sunlight on that argument, its teeth are gone. It, it can't survive, right? Like a lot of, like a lot of, and I'm not going to get too far into it, but there are a lot of ideas in the world right now that are simply, if you shine any light on them, they make no fucking sense. So they need to live in an institution. They're idealists. They need to live. They these ideas only survive in an academic realm. They don't hold up in the real world. So. Yeah. The, the term balanced trainer has become a catch-all term used by the purely positive force-free community, right, 
to characterise anybody that does not ascribe to their ideological position and their dogmatic preconceptions about what is good or bad or acceptable or otherwise. It's right. almost an, so, an ironic term, right? Because it's so juxtaposed to, to the original meaning. Yet correct, yes. The I, irony I, is I that the, 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 the balance is shifted so far to one direction. But it's so, – so it used to be, in Lindsay's model, on the balance of all available information and all available means, tools, whatever – what is the least invasive, minimally aversive approach we can take, right? Nowadays, what we see with most balanced training is people go, I'm a balanced trainer because I use punishment. And that, by Lindsay's model, is fucking bullshit, right? Balanced training has nothing to do with the use of punishment Balanced training is about the consideration of all factors, all available means and tools to find the least invasive, minimally aversive solution. So what do you think about, because obviously we're talking about there's these sort of, to a degree, these two armed camps, and I'd say you and I could probably be kind of closer to one than the other, right? In a purely... I actively, well, uh, I actively reject being called a balanced trainer because I'm just a dog trainer and I'm yeah, just but interested w- in getting better information. What I mean is if, if there were to be two extremes, you would probably, in my opinion, you may generate toward one side than the other, right? Mm, no, nah, I disagree. Okay, that, that, that may I, be a bad, that I, may be a, not, no, not an accurate characterisation. No, no, it wasn't bad. I Like... I just refuse to participate in that. Okay. I, I, well, I, I refuse to participate in it. I'm just going to do the best job that I can and I'm going to continue to try and do the hard yards and get better at the things that I do. Um, and I, I don't call myself a balanced trainer for that reason. And clearly I'm not a purely positive or force-free trainer. Um, and I don't like. I don't necessarily Excuse judge me. anyone else. I think there are more useful voices and less useful voices. Um but unfortunately, um, we're fucking lazy as humans, right? Like, remember the thing with the ADD? I bet you there's a pill for that, David, I said to the psych. Right? Yeah. Right. So then I come along, uh, someone comes along to me and they go, my dog pulls. I go, it's easy. Like you said, whack this pinch collar on this dog, go crunch. Bop, go, bop, bop. Dog stop yeah. pulling. Now, that's how you make money in the pet dog world. That's where the money is. Sustainable, scalable, easy to apply. Uh, yep. It's a, as a business model, it's easy. Yep. People like it. You can charge them a lot of money for one lesson, right, because they feel like there is a result. There are some problems with this, though, Tom. And, and some of those problems come from if you take a frustrated dog owner that feels powerless and you teach them that the answer to all of this is for you to apply punishment right to compel your dog to do this many people will 
lean very heavily into that because it also empowers them. They have felt frustrated. They have felt um, that they don't have a solution and then someone comes along and says, oh, it's easy, just do this. Or perhaps someone comes along and goes, he's pulling because you're, he's pulling because you're not being a dominant pack leader. And a dominant pack leader would not accept this behaviour from another dog. And so you need to punish him. And the pinch collar mirrors a dog's teeth on the neck, right? And dogs do it to each other, so you should do it to your dog and you should be the dominant pack leader here, right? We give that to a frustrated person and there's definitely room, and I've seen it happen time and time again, um, there is an internal payoff and uh, there's an intrinsic and an extrinsic payoff for that person doing that. And where they're getting paid externally and internally, it's very likely that they'll repeat that behaviour. You, are you following what I'm saying here? Yeah, they some is good, more is, more is better. Yep. They remove their frustration. They feel good because there's an action that they can take. They feel as though they've got the answer, right? And not only that, now their dog stops pulling or, or the pulling reduces. So yeah, I think you have to be careful with the person that you're dealing with and how you put the information to the person. And I don't think that large sections of the um, dog training, the balanced training bucket of folks want to acknowledge that. And I also think that like both sides have an error. So you've got like the purely positive force-free community will sit there and they'll say, you know, it's wrong to ever do this. But then you've got, you know, it's, it's wrong to ever use a pinch collar. They're barbaric and they're cruel. Well, I've seen them used and I've used them with incredible nuance. Um, and I've seen many, many other people do the same. I learned it from somewhere, right? Um, and the flip side of that is we get a lot of voices from that balance training bucket that don't acknowledge that you can cause harm with these devices, with these tools. Yeah. Right? And if you're not going to acknowledge that, we're not having a serious conversation because the only way that dogs and humans win together is for the conversation to shift to is how can these tools be best employed with this individual dog, right? Is there a place for them with this individual dog? Is it the best move to make at this time? Like, and then how would they, how might they be used in a way that minimizes the contingencies attached to their application? That's the only realistic welfare centric argument to have. I want to I want to pose a question to you when it comes to the because I want to get onto prongs specifically, right? I think you're a good person to talk to you about this. I want to ask you a question and sort of wrap up that you know uh, force free versus the, the balance sort of thing, right? Yeah, a I think I think <laughs> I think people like to put things in boxes because it absolves them of the nuance that's in the middle, right? It absolves them of that having to think and analyse and work nuanced in that grey space. So they just form these armed camps, right? Force free, We're trying. dominance, whatever the case is, right? So, and by asking this, I, I probably am putting, say, certain people in a box. So Pat Stewart has, I remember he had this conversation a little while ago and he was talking about 
we, we in a box, the people over here, need a better spokesperson that can champion this cause that, that doesn't come across as the meathead, just chuck a prong on him kind of guy, right? Do you agree or do you think that that's just characterising we, this armed camp, versus them, their armed camp? I haven't heard the statement, but like going on that, I don't. I think that he's probably got a point. Um, I, I've tried to be a spokesperson in this regard. At one stage, I started a professional representative organisation, um, and um, it was white anted by the industry. Sorry, it wasn't white anted by the industry. It was white anted by. Um, some well-known people and uh, that put significant barriers to it ever going anywhere. And then the rest of it I owned because I wasn't, that time in my life, what was going on with my relationship and whatever else, I wasn't a good leader of that. And so I let the team down there um, in, in a number of regards. But the industry, I don't, I don't, disagree with that at all. I think that there's real merit to someone with uh, an informed voice who wants to be a spokesperson. If you want to look for a great spokesperson, Jamie Penrith, take the lead dog training.uk, ah. join Ardo, A-R-D-O, dear friend of mine, Jimmy, right? He's a great spokesperson. He's eloquent. He's passionate. He's compassionate. He really cares. He what he The only conversation he's interested in having is a truly welfare centric conversation his jam is e-collars right uh the uk's got an imminent ban coming up and there is no better spokesperson for one part of the argument for access to e-collars than jamie penrith full stop underline it fight me about it yeah i'm actually a big fan of jamie i only found out about who he was through you and then I saw a bunch of his work on some morning TV shows and some presentations because yep. he has that standing offer to someone that can stock-proof a dog. I may get the context wrong. Stock-proof a dog using these supposed, uh, you know, force-free, positive-only sort of methods. I may have no, no, got that's, that wrong. That's but... right. He did. I think I perceive that there were some problems with that as it was put out. Um, but it was still a very interesting thing that happened. He put out an offer for any purely positive force-free person to get uh, to get a dog to a certain point in terms of stock avoidance. And it was it, it's brilliant in its simplicity in that, like, the, in the absence of the use, if a dog wants to chase a sheep, it's because it sees that sheep as an appetitive or enjoyable stimulus. So then Jamie's position is, and I'm paraphrasing, these are my words, not Jimmy's. Jimmy's a better speaker than I'll ever be. He understands that if you can change the dog's association with that sheep from being appetitive to aversive, so unenjoyable, so it looks at the sheep and goes, I don't want to chase that. We now don't have a problem with the chasing of that stock. That's better for that stock and it's also better for that dog because that dog could get harmed, right? Whether it's shot by a farmer or kicked in the head by a cow or whatever. So um, he understands that that's and, and that's what the premise of that um, 
of that challenge that he put out is. Like, it can't happen. You cannot teach an inhibition using positive reinforcement, right? Or negative punishment. And even if you want to look to it, Esther Schalke put out a paper um, that relates to e-collars, pinch collars, and negative punishment, removing a toy. I think the group was 42 Malinois. I want to say they were dogs from Hans's work, which I think is, I can't remember the exact name. It was like West Rhinefallen or Northwest Rhinefallen or something, right? Um, and there were some questions that were raised. Esther discussed that study when she was here for the weekend. And, um, you know, she says that that's not a conclusive study. It was Malinois, it wasn't pet dogs and whatever else. But when you look at the totality of the research that's out there, it's a very clear picture. If you want to stop a dog chasing, right, changing its association with that stimulus, the thing that it wants to chase, from appetitive or enjoyable to aversive, unenjoyable, well, now why the fuck would you chase it, right? If I don't want to bang brunettes because I don't find brunettes attractive. Here we go. <laughs> right? I'm not going to go fucking chatting up brunettes, am I? <laughs> okay. I thought you were going to go somewhere a lot more, uh, a bit more outrageous with that, but no, it's good. <laughs> uh, I thought about it. <laughs> um, but that's it. But that's it. Like, what if, what, if I, what if all I was attracted to as a bloke was brunettes, right? Brunette dudes. And, um, and all I'd, well, what's, right? So all I'm doing is banging dudes with brown hair. And now all of a sudden, like I have a real bad experience with one. He steals my wallet, right? Runs off with my underpants, right? And then I, now that's aversive to me. The embarrassment from that is just too great. And now I don't want to go anywhere near brunette dudes anymore, right? Like, yeah. That's essentially what we're talking about, right? So then I'm going to stop pursuing them. That's the argument with the e-collars. Um, that's, and, and that argument sort of applies across to a pinch collar too because ultimately, like, um, it's a tool with aversive potential. These tools don't do anything when you fit them to a dog. They need to be applied by a human. Yeah, they, right? they don't do anything when they're sitting on the shelf either, mate, so... I've never I, seen I, a I totally, punish a dog. I've never I, seen I a agree. collar punish a dog. I agree with the sentiment, it's, mate. Well, that, that it's a good segue because I, I want to I sort of talk about the prongs specifically. Well, let me just throw one more point in, Tom. Send right? it, send it. If, you, if we want to – the purely positive community has done a brilliant job on a couple of things. Number one – Anytime they talk about the application of punishment in dog training, they're not talking about it. So operant conditioning is learning, right? Uh, it's, it's like this is when we talk about reinforcing or punishing a behaviour, we're talking about operant conditioning. There's classical conditioning as well, and, and, and that's more about how a dog, I guess you could probably broadly say all about how a dog feels about something. It's associative learning. Um and like a dog forms an association with its food bowl because that's where the food goes, right? So that dog's been classically conditioned to love. It's that like bowl. a mode of learning. Hmm. Let's let's say that that works. So, um, in order for there to be like, how do I want to phrase this? The purely positive community has done a brilliant job of equating any application of an aversive in training with dominance theory, right? So they've done a brilliant job of marrying hierarchical models of dominance to any application of punishment, 
and you'll see it. You might not have noticed it before, but you'll see it in what they say, right? What they what they don't want to discuss is the fact that um, positive punishment and negative reinforcements, the removal of something the dog doesn't like, these are simply operant forces. And um, if I'm going to punish Snap because she doesn't drop, I'm not punishing her because I need to be dominant over that dog. I'm providing a consequence because she didn't comply with the command that I gave her. So they've done a brilliant job of doing that, right? So basically that old school model of that Mechian dominance type model, right, that comes from the alpha wolf theory stuff, they've tied any application of punishment to that. What they've also done is they've, and these are two key items, they've also tied um, They've made the word, worked very intelligently to tie the words punishment and abuse together. Right? Now, as soon as you do that, you look at those two things together, that's very powerful. Anyone that uses punishment is doing so because they believe they need to be dominant over the dog. Right, and then also any application of, they've created punishment and abuse as being synonymous, and there is no relationship of necessity between somebody punishing their dog and abuse. They have extremely distinct dictionary definitions. Right. And that, that's that's what I see, and that's why I was going to use this as a bit of a segue, but I think you've probably done it a bit better than me. When I look at this recent legislation in Queensland, um, you know, out, uh, outlawing prong collars and whatnot, um, a lot of the wording in there is around uh, preventing animal abuse, right, based on this, the, based on the premise that using a prong collar, e-coll, that type of stuff, is punishing the dog, therefore is abusive, right? Because it doesn't talk about the potential for abuse. It just says the word abuse. Correct. So, like, a couple of days ago, I heard of a, um, through a friend that um, a kennel somewhere around this area was raided by the RSPCA with a police presence as well, obviously because I think they, the RSPCA needs some sort of state authority, right, maybe protection or, or enforcement or whatever. They raided this little property um, and they were handing out $14,000 fines for prong collars, possession of prong collars yeah. per, per item, per prong collar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yep. the other thing that is in that, legislation some of that wording is it, it talks about having a reasonable excuse right and it's it's very ambiguous but there i think there's a little bit like a, a portion of that legislation that says the only reasonable excuse is a medical exemption and i want you to unpack this because you, you can probably do a bit better of a job than me in my mind i go well is it animal abuse or is it not animal abu- uh, uh, abuse because what medical exemption could warrant Animal abuse. Who's going to arbitrate? And if a medical it? exemption Who's can going to arbitrate this, who's going to? Well, it? right. So here's the question. Yeah, exactly. 
if you any reasonable person that reads that kind of wording, I'm I I read I have read it. I was familiar with it at a time. I am not now, right? But if if it's quite clear that these distinctions haven't been made, right? And and look, I don't think it's fantastic. It's a fantastic statement to say, like, clearly this kind of legislative change is driven by the purely positive and force-free agenda. It's not welfare-centric. It is about power and influence. That's what it's about. That's why you see the RSPCA behind it, right? The RSPCA make massive, massive fiscal surpluses every year. Now, they're, they're a not-for-profit, but the legal distinction there is that they can make a fiscal surplus... They don't make a profit because they're not paying dividends, right? So this, so this is all about power and it's all about influence. And you can see that kind of influence in the wording of these kinds of documents. So then um, my question is, right, who is going to arbitrate this as a reasonable excuse? Because as you say, it's not well outlined, right? And it's designed to be ambiguous. The Australian Veterinary Behavioural Interest Group, AVBIG, right, that's um, the big veterinary behaviourist group here. The Australian Veterinary Association, they're right down that US kind of model where they say that there simply is no, no reasonable excuse to be using a, a device with aversive potential in training, like an e-collar, like a pinch collar, right? So then who is a, who's going to adjudicate what is a reasonable excuse, right? This balanced training bucket of comparatively unorganised people versus these people that have all the academic accreditations, right, that, are, that have intellectually dishonestly disregarded significant peer-reviewed research to reach the place where they uh, peddle that opinion that they have. It's intellectually dishonest. That's the only word for it. They're the people that are going to be overlooking these cases and trying to work out what a reasonable excuse is. They have control. They have control uh, at an academic level. Right, so they are not well placed to do this. I still remember. Um, I would have to say, on the whole, in twenty years, the only veterinary behaviourist I've met that could really train dogs is Esther. And I said to Esther, "I go, dude, like, and this was years ago, uh, second or third time I met her, um, and I'm like, dude, over here." These veterinary behaviourists can't train dogs to even like a basic level, yet you are so fucking good, right? What's it like? Germany's got a more ethological perspective, right, to their veterinary behaviour, so they appreciate like what a dog is. Can you just briefly, mate? Can you just out? Line ethological versus ecological. Those just give us a bit of a distinction there with some of that terminology. Like dog, dogs have evolved from predators, and they have um, 
an ethological perspective sort of looks at behaviour as having like, I guess, a root cause. I don't have better words for that today, right? I really, I'm going to wish that I did. Like an and evolutionary like, outcome, uh, you mean? So, so prey drive in dogs. Yeah. Right. There's eight modal motor patterns that make up prey drive, as outlined by Coppinger, right? Uh, Ray Ray Coppinger, I forget his wife's name. He's got a book out. Um, he's got a number of books. Uh, he's an interesting fella. He, he looks at that. They're looking at what prey drive is, right? If you look at like the behaviorism, it's like, well, we're focusing on sort of the learning theory side, but not necessarily appreciating who the dog is. So like if you look at Skinner, right? And Skinner, the military training that you received, Skinnerian. You know, like, um, and, and he believed that he could get the, an organism to do any given thing, but he didn't really appreciate what instinct is, right? So you look at the, um, the veterinary behavioural thing here in Australia and the US, they don't tend to have a great um, appreciation for who a dog really is and what actually motivates dogs, Right. So these people aren't going to be well – sorry, I'll, I'll, I'm jumping around like an ADD kid. <laughs> I said to Esther, like, how common is it in Germany for a veterinary behaviourist to be able to train like you train? She goes, probably 70%. Probably 70% of them can. Now, I've seen veterinary behaviourists here that understand learning theory. I've seen them use, like – um, target sticks and positive reinforcement and whatever else to wrangle cats, like big cats and other species. But um, show me a, a – it's very rare to find a vet that can train a dog to a high level. You look at Dr. Michelle Rasul, right, my friend here in Melbourne, right? Michelle's a very handy little trainer, right, and she does a lot of work in, in the – the behavioural space, even though she's not a behavioural specialist, but she's a standout. She's a standout because she can actually train dogs with some nuance. She can build behaviour. And she, if she wants to, she's more than capable of um, training a dog for both action and for abstinence. And she understands the contribution of both. So then when she deals with her clients whose dogs have behavioural issues, because she's an active dog trainer, we train together all the time, right, because she's an active dog trainer, she goes, well, this is where the contribution of training is going to be key, right? And because she understands the reach that training can have, when she prescribes medication to help a dog that's dealing with some stuff, she's not expecting, she has realistic expectations about what role that medication may play and the role that training may play, right? So... Someone like that can sit there and say, oh, well, you know, that exemption makes sense. But someone who's already decided long before uh, they come to examining that case that a pinch collar is never appropriate, well, that's not the person to consider things on their relative merits, is it? Because they've made an ideological decision and they're the ones that will arbitrate any such claims that there's a medical exemption. 
Yeah, and it's 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 not impartial. I mean, even even sorry, in sorry my mind, language, just dude, stating that there is an exemption. Sorry, mate, I didn't mean to talk over you. It's just a bit of lag here. I'm, I'm sorry for any listeners no, that good. I've taken too far down a rabbit hole. It wasn't my intent. I just fucking get talking about it, and that's the way that my brain works. No, that's, that's fine, mate. It's all good. It's all good. Uh, most people that are listening to this show should be able to follow this sort of stuff, and if they don't, then they'll just listen to the next one. It's all good. <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, so I want to wrap up the the prong thing, and I want to I want to move on to to what Melbourne was like in COVID. Um, and that'll probably be the finisher, mate. We'll probably wrap up on that if if you're all right, because you've done a brilliant job avoiding talking about yourself, Brad. Um, Excellent. You've kept me nice and distracted, mate, with these interesting interesting little topics. So. In my mind, the fact that there is a distinction between being able to use it and then there being a medical exemption speaks volumes to me because I unpack that and I go, okay, let's look at what the, A, what, what is the medical exemption and B, why is there a medical exemption? Because if, if, if use of a prong collar paramounts to, a, to abuse, why is there an exemption for, ex, for abuse, right? And if there is case for a use, and if that, you know, albeit medical, does that not mean that there is a function for the prong collar and that maybe there is a bit of nuance that should be applied to this law? But you're right that they're, the people that are uh, arbitrating this, they are the people who are ideologically already convinced one way. Correct. So uh, another way to look at that, right, is the term medical, a medical exemption. So... Let's just imagine one. Let's imagine that a dog has uh, problems with its vertebrae up high around its neck, right? That's, that's very likely to preclude the use of a head collar because head collars can be extremely aversive tools, Yeah. right? And you don't want to be like... and. You speak to any dog chiropractor and they will tell you that head collars wreak havoc on dogs. They'll also tell you about some of these harnesses that are frequently used wreaking havoc on a dog's physiology, uh, sorry, um, anatomy. So then let's imagine that this dog um, can't have that kind of pressure applied, right? And let's imagine that the vet is smart enough to realise that perhaps a pinch collar is a least invasive, minimally aversive solution, right? That seems valid, right? Correct. That seems valid. Well, sorry, the pinch collar wouldn't be the whole solution, but it'd be part of it in this case. But then if these people have already fucking decided from the moment that they woke up that morning, right, that a pinch collar never has a use case, they shouldn't be fucking adjudicating it. It's as simple as that. But more interestingly too, they, they use the term medical, right? Well, what about behavioural? They, they might say, well, medically, right, they might say that behavioural health of the dog is the medical health of the dog. Okay, cool. Well, then that means that there's a, a completely different conversation to have about 
the true welfare of a dog, right? Because if a dog isn't abuse can abuse can also take the form of neglect. Correct. Right? So abuse is not always about what is done. Sometimes abuse is about what's not done. Right? And if you want to have a truly welfare-centric conversation, if a dog wants to chase stock and they leave it on a flat collar because, as the RSPCA would say, you know, you should restrain that dog, right, and the collar fails or the owner falls over, the elderly owner falls over and can't get back up and can't reach the leash, right, there is a legitimate line of of inquiry to be made, hey, we could have changed that dog's association with the stock, right, using electronics very effectively. We could have used a pinch collar as a piece of the puzzle to stop that dog pulling. We didn't do those things and now this dog runs off and gets kicked in the head by a fucking llama, right? (laughs) Yeah. Did we compromise that dog's welfare through inaction? I would argue there's a pretty reasonable case to say yes, we did. Yeah. Sorry, I agree. Man. Get me off this topic because I'm just going to get fucking stuck on it. <laughs> That's all right. I was just going to say we'll. We'll get on and uh, one final point, like the RSPCA who, like, yes, they, they do some great work, but uh, to my knowledge, mate, they, they put down more dogs for behavioural issues every year than anyone else in this entire country. Well, that that that's might be a fair criticism, but this is another thing that we tend to see the balanced training community saying, right? So we know for sure that the RSPCA has already decided... So I've consult, I haven't consulted with the RSPCA. I conduct um, behavioural evaluations on dogs for court cases and stuff down here and do some subject matter expert work. Yep. Um, and when I've met some really nice people at the RSPCA, really nice people. They care about the dogs. They're not allowed to walk a dog on a check chain, right? So the RSPCA is an... They, they contract their facilities to animal management agencies, right? And it's inevitable that when dogs land with them in their care, there's going to be a whole bunch of dogs that need to be euthanised. It's probably not fair to say that, like, a lot of the time, the balanced training community will say, well, you put down all these dogs and these dogs could have been saved. No, there's a group of dogs that are behaviourally irredeemable, right? And then there's another group of dogs that are not behaviorally irredeemable, but they're square pegs that wind up in a round hole and they get put in the bin. But then in amongst the entire number of dogs that the RSPCA or any other, like the, you know, Lord Smith Animal Hospital or whatever the organisation is, um, Lost Dogs Home, in amongst that group if they have already deemed that these devices never have any place, then there are definitely going to be an unknown number of dogs that could otherwise have been completely rehomable and ideology sees those dogs dead 
That's not euthanasia. That's killing. Euthanasia has a dictionary definition, right? So out of the total number of dogs that die at any given RSPCA in a year, right, some of them will be legitimate euthanasias, behaviourally irredeemable, right, Um, very sick, whatever. But then there are going to be a number that are simply killed, right? And that's where this Lima model comes in, right? Considering all available means. Well, the less means we have available, the less dogs we can reach. Less dogs we can have. Yeah, correct. Maybe that's your little segue okay. to get me off the topic, buddy. It, it is, mate. Yeah, let's let's hit up. Um, let's talk about COVID briefly. COVID in Melbourne. It fucked me hard. <laughs> okay, so for the for the people listening like in australia right, most but, people know on, that one it was sec, one sec yeah one sec i'm just gonna rock a piss real quick i was just thinking the same thing i'll just edit this bit out or maybe not nah, leave it in <laughs> um so now that we're back i just want to touch on this because it's fucking bugging me right um <laughs> so i've i've googled this so that we get the right words so ethology is described um, as the science of animal behaviour, the study of behaviour and social organisation from a biological perspective, right? So if you want to look at that, um, what is the purpose of aggression, right? Uh, like aggression plays a function. What is So an ethological perspective is that dominance does in, indeed exist, Dominance is not dead. Dominance does exist. What's the purpose of dominance? It's not aggression, right? Dominance and aggression have no relationship of necessity. The purpose of dominance is prosperity within the group. Makes no sense to be fighting over things all the time. It's better that one animal defers to the other and we continue on with social cohesion and the profit, broadly speaking, the profitability of the group, right? So that's an ethological perspective. Then you look at behaviorism. And then the, de- the definition I have here is behaviorism is a systematic approach to understand the behavior of humans and other animals. It assumes that behavior is either a reflex evoked by the pairing of a certain antecedent stimuli, so something that comes before in the environment, or a consequence of that individual's history, including especially reinforcement and punishment as contingencies of behavior, right? Uh, together with the individual's current motivational state and controlling stimuli, right? Although behaviourists generally accept the important role of heredity in determining behaviour, they focus primarily on environmental events. So you can see that those two are then sort of, in some way, they can marry very well and really great dog trainers do marry them well, right? Um, But that behaviorism versus the ethological perspective, our veterinary um, groups tend more towards that US behaviorism type model. And when you speak with someone like Esther, she considers both on their merits. So anyway, I just wanted to round that out because I didn't want to come off as an absolute fucking idiot for not knowing. Didn't want to leave it hanging. No, it's all good, mate. All good. It it does make sense, mate. Look, there's sometimes there's a biological necessity for for behaviour, and then there's behaviour itself in isolation, which is you know your classical your operant conditioning. This is on the on the topic of dominance. This is where you'll see, you know, the purely positive force free community. Like they'll say dominance is dead, and then they've done research to that that 
um, states that dominance can only occur between conspecifics, so only occur between dogs, right? But then if you look at it from an ethological perspective, a dog is only a dog, right? And so therefore it is completely plausible that a dog, only being a dog, dominance is part of how they navigate the world, it's not the motivator for behaviour that a lot of people in the dog world would claim it to be, but it is a real phenomenon. And dominance exists between in the interaction between um, two living things. It exists in an interaction as opposed to necessarily being characterised as a personality trait, if you will. Yeah, Anyways, like it's not the, we'll, the we'll primary motivator, so to speak. I'm just going to get rid of this. Dominate this. I'll be on to you for chucking a rock at a bird. It wasn't a rock, it was multiple rocks. Oh, nice shotgun. So, um, <laughs> you want to talk about COVID and, and what that was like in Melbourne, 262 days of lockdown? Yeah, and, and, and that's, that's the context for people listening, right? Most people in Australia know that um, Melbourne had a horrendously long lockdown. Your, your premier, I, I think it was, was the longest in the world. Yeah, correct. I think it was longest in the world, yeah. Um, mate, give us the skinny on that because, like, I know that it wreaked havoc on businesses, on relationships, mental health, families, um, all, all of the, the the COVID dogs that we hear about because they weren't socialised properly. Give us the skinny, mate, on, on COVID in Melbourne. So from a dog perspective... The, from a you perspective. The legis- okay. So um, it was very rough. I received no... Because of the way my business is set up, I received no government funding for the vast majority of it. And thanks to my wonderful accountant, Susie Timas from Cody Bay Consulting, she uh, worked out that it was completely legal for me to, for her to change um, some distinction in the back end of the accounting stuff. It was completely legal. Uh, and I was no, I was a different class of business, and she. So I'm living on the smell of an oily rag for a long time, and then Susie turns around and goes, "Hey, I want to spend whatever it was, two hundred, three hundred bucks on changing this." I, go, I don't know, Susie. Like, that's a lot of money. I go, "What's in it?" She goes, 14 grand on Friday." Go, Fuck! You're kidding me. Bang. And then I got a little bit of funding. But, yeah, it decimated, my, like, the coffers, right? Um, there's been significant fallout from it and I'm still dealing with it, but it is what it is, right? Um, you know, everyone took a giant hydraulic suck on that cock and <laughs> still can't get the taste out of my mouth. Yep. <laughs> how the fuck we have a – how we how the fuck we have – we had a, an investigation, so this is for overseas listeners. There was a police investigation into, so we had this pivotal incident, like the hotel incident, right? So people were being quarantined very, very early on. They were being quarantined in hotels. And it turned out that, um, the so security guards don't get paid a lot of money here, right? And this comes from a mate of mine who is Indian, and what he told me is, he goes, a lot of these security guards are Indians, right? And they have multiple jobs and they live in big households, right? And so these guys weren't taking these precautions. I think some dude was getting his dick sucked for 
delivering fucking cheeseburgers or some shit. Like there was some real sketchy stuff. There was some proprietor that was upgrading rooms or something. If the chicks would give him a kiss on the dick, there was like a whole bunch of fuckery that went on there. Right. And it wasn't well run. And there was a police investigation into it. And the police came to the conclusion, I believe, and please fact check this, but I think it was something along the lines of there were two people that could have known. Right. And it, it wasn't well orchestrated. And so this was the reason that um, 600 odd people died. And oh, for shit. some reason, yeah. And for some reason, our Premier turned around and said, I think it's just time to move on. So if you kill 600 people, you're the valiant leader of a, of a basically <laughs> fucking hostage state. It never needed to get to the point that it did. It got to the point that it did, according to my mate who is a doctor who was on the front lines. Two days ago, he told me it got to the point that it did because it was so poorly managed with that stuff in the start, right? And so we shut down massive debt. Um, the uh, another friend of mine works in that government at a high level and told me that the aid packages were never designed to be easy to access. And apparently there was still a heap of money left over at the end of that. And so the dog training industry got decimated and I had ability to, because I have an indoor facility, and this is not at all the common business model. Because I had an indoor facility, it got to a point where I was able to take certain clients for behavioural reasons uh, and take appropriate precautions. Um, and, yeah, a lot of people really fucking sucked one on it. It was, you know, it was very yeah. tough. Very yeah, tough. It decimated my, my training, my uh, dog bite prevention training. Um, decimated that, um, you know, and yeah, it definitely had an effect on dogs too, buddy. There was a lot of dogs, you know, adoptions were high and access to training services was low. The well, irony it's now is, come though, to be known as COVID dogs, right? Or COVID puppies. Yeah, and I see a lot of it because I deal with a lot of anxious dogs. Um, yeah. And... The irony of it was if people read the legislation, they could pretty much do anything they needed to do with their dogs during that time, with the absence of being able to get them around crowds and whatever else. There were certainly some limitations. But it was a time when people were horribly disempowered and there was a lot of fear-mongering, right? And that affected those dogs. Yep. You know? And so, again, like... If we want to take it from a welfare perspective, there were things that didn't happen which which affect those dogs' quality of life possibly forevermore, right? It wasn't anything that someone did. It was things that weren't done that compromised their welfare. Yeah, I think – and, like, when I hear people say stuff about the, the, the COVID conspiracy or, or whatnot, I mean, I've worked for the federal government. I can tell you right now that they're not that organised – um, yeah, it's agree. it's things COVID's like that. Fucking real, man. My mate, my mate was doing hundred hour weeks. One of my best friends in the world, right, was doing hundred hour weeks. And I put off getting the jab for ages. And I, I, we just had a deal, right? I said I'm not getting the fucking jab, right? There's some big question marks around it, which are now turning out to be true too, right? Like, 
there's a lot of information coming out around the way that all of this was conducted. And I'm not going to get into it because it's, it's massively outside my purview as a dog trainer. But, you know, I had a deal with him. Like it got to the point where our hospitals were full here and he said, me and another mate of mine, he said, you've got to go and get the jab because regardless, like I'm not going to be able to pull any strings to get you in if you get real sick. You could yeah. legit die because we're turning people like pe- they weren't literally turning people away, but in effect they were turning people away. Um, yeah. So it was. So it was what it was, man. But it was a it was a very difficult time. I'm sort of grateful. I've been around long before COVID, and I'll be around long after. Um, but there were a lot of people out there who were adversely affected, and. Um, I think it's still affecting a lot of businesses, dog training businesses now. Yeah. And when can, they, can they turn just, around – yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Tommy. I, I want to I wanna shout out, like, there, I think for all the fuckery that was COVID here in Victoria, uh, in Australia in general, right, um, I think we also saw some greatness come out in people. So I have a friend named Bridie Charlesworth. Bridie runs a business called the Dog Education Centre up in New South. It's a big fucking operation, right? She's a gun businesswoman, just built like a three-acre facility and whatever else. And she was paying all of her employees during lockdown out of her own pocket to make sure they were okay, right? That's the kind of human that she is. Yeah. Right. I know Dave McKelson, who runs Pro Dog down here, did everything he could to look after his people. Right. And so, for all the fuckery, we did see some great. We, we, there is there are plenty of stories out there too of like really good people. I have one particular friend, I can remember during COVID. I thought, fuck, I'm going to have to go and do some shopping here. So I was sitting down and I thought, I think I was down to about 600 bucks at this stage. So I thought I'll sit down and I'll just work out like how much money I've got and what I'm going to eat. And so I thought, Let, let's just check the bank balance. So I went in, there was an extra 1500 bucks in there and it was COVID relief from a mate of mine. And he did it Jesus. more than once. Jesus. He did it more than once. Yeah. Yeah, and I had other people that, like, um, I had clients offer to, like, pay for training packages in advance. I didn't take any of that because I, I really didn't know what would happen. Like, um, I, I wasn't comfortable taking their money. But there was yeah. some, some real generosity out there in amongst it all. Yeah, man, I think situations like that bring out the, the best and the worst, right, and everything in between. Yeah. Like I, you know, like I was saying before, I don't think there was a conspiracy. I think there was people that used the opportunity, and there were people that mismanaged it, and there were people that got caught in the middle of it. Yeah, I and and I, my personal belief is like, I just never let a good crisis go to waste, and there are so many malignant agendas out there that leverage that. No, hundred percent, hundred percent, there yeah, were. I don't, I don't believe. You know, do I believe that some powerful people? used that i mean i think pfizer made a hundred billion dollars during that period of time 
mean, yeah. any time there's that much money, there's reason to be suspicious. Oh, yeah. Um, People will do a lot worse for a lot less, mate. Yeah. Dude, we had, you probably saw we had these protests down here. Like, They're pretty epic, man. Just like, we, we're not going to cop it anymore. And I had a mate of mine reach out to me. Uh, my dog's snappy. Come up here. Get up here. Come snap. say hi. Oh, snappy. Hello, snappy. Oh, oh. <laughs> All right, buddy. Off you go. Careful of the cable. She's pestering me because she needs a run. Um, so I actually had someone say, hey, bro, are you going to go to this? And I said, no. He's like, yeah, but we all need to stand up. I go, dude, half of these blokes that are saying to stand up have never had a fucking traffic fine, let alone be punched in the fucking mouth, right? Well, you're going to lead a, uh, you, you're going to lead a fucking insurrection <laughs> with a couple of thousand blokes that, like, just left them the bungalow in their mum's backyard, right? Like, the, they've never been in a fucking fist fight let alone going against cops that are armed. No, I'm not having anything to fucking do with it. But yeah, I, then I you think, get mixed, mixed also, up in all the crazies. Yeah, and, and I think that also it probably highlights the fact that, you know, any. I think that it's reasonable to look at that and just go, how much... How powerless were we really? Like, what ability do we have to stand up to government, right? In a situation where the government does something that's not good, I think it highlights also, like, we're relatively powerless. And and I think as Aussies, we're very apathetic. Like, you look in the US, and I'm not advocating anything by this, but you look in the US, you've, you know, you've got citizens over there that are armed, and part of the reason that they have a right to bear arms is because they come from a background of massive civil insurrection, right, and, and civil war. And so, you know, that, that populace has the ability to stand up and, and parts of it did. And here, I mean, fuck, years before COVID, there was a law passed that it's illegal to wear a mask at a rally. And everyone just looked past that and thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You don't want troublemakers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the, I don't know. The, the, I feel the, sorry. Crowd, the crowd's fickle too, isn't it, mate? Yeah, man. And I felt real sorry. Like, my, I've got mates that are cops, right? They didn't want to fucking enforce this bullshit. They didn't agree with it. Right, but they're also sworn to do a fucking job and they don't get to set the rules. People were like bashing the fuck out of cost for it. Now, for sure, there's bad apples in every bunch, right? But fuck, what are you going to do? Like the whole thing was just a shit fight from arsehole to breakfast. No one, there was no winners. The only ones that won were the people that gained influence by it, people that made money off it. You know, everyone else just suffered. Yeah. So it is what it is, but yeah, it was it was real tough, man. It was real real tough. Um, yeah, but it is what it is, and I don't think I used that. I, I look back on it, I could have dealt with it very, very differently. But also during that time, I was unmedicated for my ADD, and it was fucking going hard, and I did not realise. I did not realise until I woke up one day and I go, 
I thought I was having real problems with procrastinating about this and that. And then I woke up one day and literally like I just had a cup of coffee and I've gone, oh, this is all the same fucking thing. This is all one thing. Went and got on the meds, guess what got better? Yeah. But also all my coping strategies for dealing with that were um, greatly reduced too, you know, like the ability to go and train and do whatever else. And, yeah, not not the best time for me. Uh, everyone ate a dick on it pretty much. And, you know, that's the way it goes. I'm not going to – I'm not bitching about it. It just was tough. Yeah. So – well, now that, now that we're past it, right, now that we've all sort of moved out of that and, you know, mostly it's forgotten about, like what's the plans for the business in the future? Because you're looking at um, doing some stuff to your store, uh, to your store, to your indoor training facility, right? You've been doing some upgrades and all sorts of things. Yeah, so I learned to weld, I think, a little bit, perhaps right at the start of COVID. So I've, I've um, fabricated a whole bunch of equipment, um, to do the place up and I've got a, some major upgrades um, currently underway so I'm really looking forward to having the facility all done and dusted and at the end of that my hope is that it is a really good use of a comparatively small space a very intelligent use of it um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to I've got well I've had a couple of puppies fall through on me um, unfortunately, but I'm, I'm looking forward to, de de to developing some more dogs and really leaning heavily into areas that I consider weaknesses for me as a trainer. Uh, okay. Tracking is one of them, right? Um, so oh, I'm really mate, looking forward to developing myself over the next sort of three to five years in the detection and, and um, the, just generally in the olfaction space. Um, and I've got... I've got a little special project planned um, for another dog. I'm not going to let the, I've discussed it with you privately, but I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag on that one. So I've got some interesting things in store for me, like in regards to um, continuing to learn the craft. Yep. Um, I'm looking forward to having some really good quality international people come out. We just had Hans and Esther here for a private weekend seminar uh, and then got to hang out with them, which is just great, like – we were talking before about the Dunning-Kruger, like being at the peak of Mount Stupid. You get to spend time like that. Like we've got Ben Gertz, Peter Hawkins. We've got uh, um, you know, even like Dr. Michelle's here. Everyone's here. And like everyone by comparison to those two is just a fucking chump. <laughs> Not that people yeah. can't do things, but everyone's just sitting there fucking taking notes wildly like – People that think they're at the peak amount stupid, you've got to make your world appropriately small for you to hold that perspective because you spend time around Hans and Esther and every single fucking nuanced aspect is completely covered in their method. They don't even call it a system. They reject the idea it's a system. It's their method. And guess what? They've been training dogs for like 30 years apiece. We went out to dinner. There was Dr. Michelle, Gertzi, me, Hans and Esther, and we worked it out. There was 120 of years of dog training experience sitting at the table, right? Um, i got 20. Gertie eclipses me and then I think Michelle's fucking whatever it was, 12 years, and, and then Hans and Esther are 30 plus a piece, whatever it added up to. So yeah. um, 
you know, and you sit around these people and you just go, I am not that good. But not it's not disempowering. They're great coaches too. It's like, yeah, you can learn this. You can if you want to do the work, you can learn it. Like it's there to be had. You've just got to want to chase it. So that's what I'm looking forward to to doing. I've got, I've got some other yeah. moves I'm making, which I've discussed with you privately, which I'm hopeful about. Um, some of the dog bite prevention work has picked up again, which is great. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm changing some of the format. I'm off, I'm offering, uh, I'll be offering this year some real tightly focused small group learning opportunities that are um, very much focused on not on not. How do I put this? Normal obedience class that you go to, they go in this level. Your dog will learn this, this, and this. Right, I'm interested in doing things a little differently to that, and so it's like it's much more about how the dog learns. This is important because this is going to build towards this, which is going to build towards this. So it's much more about. Um, it's not about simple skills. So I'm, uh, there might be. I'm unaware of anyone that's done it this way. My mates I've spoken to overseas, they're unaware of anyone that's done it this way. That's not to say it hasn't been done. Uh, I think when I spoke to you about it. You hadn't heard about it. There's another mate of mine. I've, 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 the people that I've sort of sought counsel from on this, it all seems to be like, yeah, in theory it can work, but they might just, I'm either going to, it's either going to be real cool that I pull it off or it's going to show Tommy that there's a fucking reason why no one does it that way. <laughs> 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 and I, I have no clue which one it's going to be, but I'm going to give it a red-hot crack. Mate, to be an entrepreneur, bro, you've got to be prepared to fail, dude. So you're putting your neck out there. Yeah. Yep. Um, but, yeah, that's it. So get the facility done. I'm looking forward to more dogs. I'm playing with the idea of breeding Snap again. She's got another litter in her, and the last litter worked out really well. Um, awesome. She did. She did that litter for Varg Kennels. I didn't do that litter, and they always do a great job. Shout-outs to the boys. Oh, mate, the boys um, are Varg. Good to go, eh? Yeah, and, and then – you know, yeah, they're fucking great. And then, yeah, hopefully, um, hopefully I can make all that work and, and just keep chasing the craft and do some cool guy shit with my own learning. And then I've got a, this year, we've, we've probably got, my guess it'd be six, maybe seven people that are going to put a BH on their pet dogs and the vast majority of them started with behavioural issues. Some of them are on meds right, whatever else. So that'll be a nice little thing. And, um, yeah, I've, I've got a few other little points of distinction um, which, I won't, which I won't announce because uh, I don't want to give myself some kind of payoff for talking about them. I just want to get them done. Yep. But, yeah, Not that's fair it, enough, man. mate. That's it. And in the meantime, just, you know, um, try and sort of ratchet the business side of things down and get things back to being appropriately profitable whilst doing work that I can be proud of. Yeah. I think it's a good thing to aspire to, mate. And if people want to find you, Brad, where are they going to find you, mate? Uh, letter K number nine services.com.au is the website. There's links to all the socials there. 
Um, I don't really do TikTok that sits on a different phone because that is basically Chinese spyware and it's toxic as fuck. Um, I probably get on Instagram a little too much when the ADD kicks in. Um, I, if, if people have training inquiries, they should submit them via the website. Also got the podcast is coming back. I've actually... I'm going to talk about ADD, bro. I've got probably 16 hours of podcasts that I've got to release. I think we've finally got we're very close to having that back in regular production with the goal of having episodes out weekly. Um, but that's called Good. the STIM podcast, the stuff that interests me. Um, and it's pretty much all fucking dog related. Uh, folks should go on there and listen to your episode there. It was, you, you were great. Was that the first podcast <laughs> you'd ever done? Uh, second, second one. Yeah, but the best. I've done one just, just before. Yeah, definitely the best to date. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've done one like a week or two before, I think. And then our, our mutual friend, okay. Mick, introduced us. Yeah. Mick's, Mick's done a lot of Mick. stuff for this business, mate, I'd say. Oh, big shout out to Mick. Big he, shout he out to Mick. He fucking connects, he connects people. He connects people. He's very He good. does. Oh, dude, yeah, half of my state's trip that, was due um, to Mick. That's how I got on Working Dog Radio. They, Mick made the connection. Right, so, same as me, man. <laughs> he's done yeah. so much, so much for this business, bro. Like five Aussies, huh? Yeah, yep. But, yeah, man, that's, yeah. that's pretty much it. Other than that, other than that, like, um, I'd, if, if, if people... I train people and I train their dogs. We're not for everyone. Like if if you're just looking for the quickest possible answer, then maybe we're not for you. Um, if you want to reach out about training, do yourself a favour and get across some episodes of my podcast and or you've heard this one now so you have some idea where I stand on certain things. Get across the kind of training that myself and my clients do because, you know, if you're used to training and... Easy. Well, mate, in case it is still recording on both ends and on my end, and we'll just put your audio over the top of it, um, you did a spectacular job avoiding speaking about yourself. Um, and I, th- <laughs> I thank you very much for being on the show, Brad. Um, and I've been wanting to repay you for having me on your podcast for a long time, man. So I very much appreciate the A, you had me on, and B, you've had some time to come on and speak to me in depth about a couple of interesting things, bro. So, mate, thank you so much, Brad. Thanks for listening to that episode of the Origin Canine Podcast. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, subscribe to the YouTube channel, give us a rating on your podcast platform, or go to origincanine.com for our tactical canine equipment, which includes collars, leads, harnesses, and merchandise. Thanks for listening, guys.